get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario, Alex Ferrario, BK, and T-Bone with you as we get set to kick off a new week and try and get our audio situated. But we kick off a new week with a Cardinals series win. That's right, T-Bone, a series win for the Redbirds. They are off and running with this offense as they wrapped up the weekend. The first series against this Blue Jays pitching staff where it was Alec Manoa, Kevin Gossman, Chris Bassett, three Supposed to be top pitchers, and the Cardinals just knocked them around. 373, 426, 591 slash. We're all on board, right? Yeah, it was beautiful. Best and offense. let's go ahead and take two. We're going to get this thing started here the right way. Swing and a drive. Hammer deep right field. Springer will turn. Lead off home run. He takes a mighty cut. Rick Merrifield drifting back. Look at that ball carry. That ball is gone. Start thinking. That ball launched high in the air, right center field. That baby's belted. That baby is long gone. High fly ball, belted right. Gorman does it again. Ball it into right center field. Springer's on the run. Burleson's got another extra base hit. A homer and two doubles for Burleson. It's nine to three. That should do it. Roller to short. Throw to first is in time, and that's ball game. Cardinals beat the Blue Jays. Take two out of three, Brad. They score nine runs in two of the three affairs. Chip Carey said it better than me. That audio courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Thank you all so very much for tuning in on a Monday morning as the Cardinals are coming off of a very impressive first series against the Toronto Blue Jays. Nine runs, four runs, nine runs in their three games over the weekend. Every player in the lineup yesterday and on Thursday had at least one hit. Alex, this is the offense that we were waiting on. This is the offense that yours truly predicted coming into the season. It lived up to every possible expectation over the weekend. The Cardinals had the lowest strikeout rate of any team in Major League Baseball coming off of the first weekend of the season. They were also top three in slugging percentage and top three in line drive rate. That is exactly what you're looking for. They're hitting the ball hard. They're making contact regularly. And oh, by the way, something I know Cardinals fans love they're not striking out. I think the biggest thing to me, Alex, is that this team has a clear identity, and that's what Ollie Marmel talked about after the weekend series win against the Toronto Blue Jays. It's a pretty scary lineup. You can give guys a day off, and it doesn't matter because the guys that are coming in are, are very productive as well. So we feel good about where we're at. The identity of this club is a strong one. It really is. We know exactly who they are. They're trying to outscore their potential issues with pitching. We'll get into that coming up here in just a little bit. But I thought Saturday was most symbolic of where this team is right now. You don't have Lars Newbar. He's dealing with that thumb issue. You don't have Wilson Contreras. He's dealing with the knee issue. You have Alec Burleson, who is 
apparently your fourth outfielder right now over Dylan Carlson. He comes into the lineup. He's batting second for you. You have Nolan Gorman, who is your DH this year, who was a part of the roster last year, but let's be honest, it was up and down for him. He has had a torrid start to the season so far. He's batting fifth for you. The issue all year long last year was trying to find somebody to piece together the two and five hole spots. You knew you loved Goldie. You knew you loved Arenado. You really liked Brendan Donovan when he got going as your leadoff hitter, but piecing things together two and five was tough at times last year. They've already figured that out, and they've had four dudes that have filled into those two spots in the lineup in the first three games of the season. That, to me, is symbolic of where this team is right now offensively. Man, when I was watching all week and I just kept thinking to myself, man, this looks like a better offense than the 2004 Cardinals. (laughs) And I said, man, good thing we've got BK to, to put us in line when it comes to the expectations for this offense. There's no breathing room. And that's what we talked about all season long, and you saw it firsthand. And you saw the impact of a guy like Wilson Contreras because it was when he wasn't in the lineup on Saturday and Andrew Kisner was there, no disrespect to him, but it does change the way you view that batting order because there is a, if you want to call it an easy out for the pitching staff, and then it kind of cycles it back around and it takes away that threat. But man, when you've got a lineup that looks like that, and it does come down to that two hole and that five hole of how they approach the at-bats, you're just talking about trying to trying to limp your way to the finish line to where you can get to the eight hole, which, oh, by the way, is Jordan Walker, who's turning around (laughs) on fastballs 103 miles an hour. Oh, and then I've got to deal with Tommy Edmond, who can still get on base. So there's no breathing room. And now I learned even more than what I thought before. Your bench provides that no breathing room. I mean, this really is a suffocating offense that this Cardinals has. I mean, that's the most impressive part about it. I mean, we talk about one through nine getting a hit on opening day, and then you add in Burleson records a hit yesterday who wasn't in the opening day lineup. You add in Carlson with three hits yesterday as well. I mean, this lineup is just unbelievably deep, at least early on here in the season. Look, I was skeptical of that early on because it was, okay, well, we'll see what Walker is down the year. We'll see if Gorman ends up carrying what he had in spring training. We'll see about Lars Newport. We'll see if the power is real from Donovan. And everything that you wanted to see coming from spring training and everything that was kind of hyped up in the offseason came to it came to happen over the weekend. I mean, just one through nine, I have not seen a lineup this deep in St. Louis since I've been covering the team. And that's only been like three years, but it tells you the state of the Cardinals right now in this offense. I mean, that five hole spot was a spot that I kept just preaching last year. They need somebody to take that spot and run with them. And they got that from Albert in the second half, but now you've got Contreras that can lock that down when he's in the lineup. And then in that two spot, Burleson Newpar played really well there. And now you've got that six spot. And I, I was texting with a buddy over the weekend. That's, sixth spot is what separates the good teams from the great teams when it comes to their offense and right now you've got Tyler O'Neill and Nolan Gorman hitting there with no pressure in the world to just mash bombs like I this lineup is just incredibly deep and it is going to be tough for any pitching staff to go up against all season long and it's not just deep on opening day I I think the big thing for us is you can give guys days off and you feel good about the players that are replacing them and in recent years that has not always been the case and I think that's led to some exhaustion We saw that a few years ago with Matt Carpenter, where in the first half of the season, excellent. And then he wears down. You start seeing the bat speed slow down a little bit. And by the end of the year, he's on fumes. We've seen that in the past from Tommy Edmond, where you get to midseason. It's like, man, is is this guy going to be able to make it to the end of the year? I don't think we're going to have those issues this season. I think they do have the depth to be able to cover up for 
any sort of off days that these guys need day to day. Tyler O'Neill, for example, you can get him days off in center field to rest those legs to make sure he's fresh by the end of the season and you feel good about the players that are filling in for him. And a big reason why is because of the left-handed bats that they have available to them right now. Guys, I can't even begin to describe the number of segments that we spent during the offseason talking about, hey, do, do they have enough left-handed hitters on this roster to make you feel good about it? We talked to Jesse Rogers four, five different times last year where he said, hey, left-handed hitters, that's what makes the difference in the postseason. And you look at the Phillies, hard to argue with what he had to say there. Here's what Ollie Marmel had to say over the weekend about the guy that, to me, changes my outlook on the Cardinals left-handed hitting ability with Alec Burleson coming through big for this team. This is a guy that finds the barrel uh, regardless of how good you are on the mound. He's going to take a really, really tough at bat and today was a good day for it. Um, barreled a lot of balls. We're going to continue to see that out of him but a very productive day out of Burley. Alec Burleson over the weekend had to start two games for them with Lars Newbar out of the lineup. Three for eight overall finished with two doubles a home run couple of ribbies that's what you're looking for and it's not just him brendan donovan showed that newfound power nolan gorman a couple of homers yesterday those three combined your three big time left-handed hitters hit 387 with four walks two doubles five home runs and 12 rbi in the first three games of the season Yeah, that is why the Cardinals stayed out of the Ben Gamble or Cody Bellinger markets during the offseason. They believed in their internal options. And so far, it's a super small sample size, only three games. But you went up against some pretty damn good pitching and all of the returns were positive. I mean, hearing Chris Bassett say afterwards that I didn't realize how many guys could hit how many pitches out of my arsenal in that lineup. Um, Watching Alec Burleson bat reminds me a lot of Matt Adams. Like at the early portion of Matt Adams, that's who I see at the plate right there. And I mean, like that comp. let's not overlook like Matt Adams. We think of like the, the most recent years of Matt Adams, but 2016, 2017, that was a scary good Matt Adams in the middle of your order. And you're talking about a guy who hit in the two hole for you the last couple of days who, if somebody else heats up on this roster, could be hitting in the five or six or seven hole. So uh, it's a weapon that you didn't have last season because when Albert Pujols, who was supposed to be that bench threat for you, became the everyday lineup threat for you, your bench really really took a hit in terms of who the threat was. Now you've got a guy like Alec Burleson. You remember uh, his rookie year, Matt Adams? Remember what season that was? 2013. 2004 he wouldn't have been that old uh, the team that the offense that I've been comparing this year's uh, group to no coincidence there they have their version of Matt Adams you can act like you said 2013 all you want but you said 2004 Uh, 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service tax line do want to address this from the 573 BK still want to trade Nolan Gorman you were wanting to trade him all offseason no sir not true I didn't want to trade Nolan Gorman we were discussing if the Cardinals were going to trade for a catcher which they of course decided not to do the guy that you would likely have to use in such a trade was Nolan Gorman. Now we are seeing why the Cardinals decided not to go that route. We questioned it. We wondered if this was the right way to go with signing Wilson Contreras instead of trading for um, Sean Murphy. They decided to go this route. I like what we've seen so far from Wilson Contreras. I really like what we've seen so far from Nolan Gorman. And I also think when you look back to last year at the trade deadline, You think back to what they could have acquired with Juan Soto. Guys, what would it have required them to trade? Well, Jordan Walker, Mason Wynn, Nolan Gorman, Gordon Graceffo, 
Now we're starting to see what patience can do for a team and why they opted not to trade those guys at the deadline. I know everybody points to Dylan Carlson. He's your fifth outfielder now, and that's the guy that held up a trade. No, he was part of what held up a trade. The other pieces are the ones that all of us are enjoying watching right now. Jordan Walker had a hit in every game this weekend, and he is like an afterthought because of how amazing the offense looks right now. That is when you know you're in a good spot offensively. I don't remember him getting a hit on Saturday, but apparently he did. That's how good this lineup is. The dude has multiple opportunities so far of elite sprint speed is considered 30 feet per second in Major League Baseball. He's done that multiple times so far. An elite arm is 100 plus miles per hour coming out of the outfield. He's done that already so far this he year. Hit the cutoff, man, but it's fine. It's all it right. was once. It happened though. He also has hit the ball 100 plus miles per hour. I think in two out of his three games so far, coming off of the bat. The guy is everything you could have asked for, and then some. Uh, I was wondering during the off season if he was actually ready for this. Oh, he's ready, dude. He he is ready. He looks fully prepared to be a contributing member of this lineup. And when that dude is batting seventh or eighth in your lineup, who, buddy? It's going to be a fun season here in St. Louis. Cardinals back in action later on this evening. You got Jake Woodford on the mound going up against Charlie Morton. A bit of a pitching disadvantage for the Cardinals against the Atlanta Braves starting at 645. Charlie Morton, Morton's pretty damn good. I, I like Charlie Morton quite a lot. Uh, Apparently apparently a little too much you like Charlie Morton. But the Cardinals have a good lineup going up against quality Dude, pitching Woodford as we saw for the spring. weekend. Put it on a, on a measuring stick. Which one does BK like more? The Cardinals offense? Charlie Morton. Clearly Charlie everything. Morton. I, I prefer the Cardinals offense. If there's as one, I have stated all offseason to anybody that would listen. Woody, the, shouting it from the, the one trade that BK is going to be clamoring for. Remember when we had Kyle Gibson updates oh on my. our broadcast? Yeah, play the uh, it's going to be Charlie Morton all oh. season long. I, Remember when certain shows on this station were clamoring for Madison Bumgarner during the offseason and last year during the season. Oh, dude, he was bad. Yeah. He's getting shut well, down for Consistency. He, pl- he pitches every f- fifth yeah, day. Except for anymore. when he's on the IL. Well, he's a playoff <laughs> performer, right? Coming up next, we're talking about Jack Flaherty. His outing on Saturday was really a tale of, tale of two different stories. What, he'll be better today? The micro, man, I will give him credit where he where it is due. The macro, oh, buddy, this could be a problem for the Cardinals. Talk about it all coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Runners lead. Off they go. The pitch. Caught on and missed. And the side is retired. Swing and a miss. He went back to it, and it worked. Don't listen to us. Jack, do your thing. Strike three. Paints the outside corner. Beautiful pitch. Low stress inning for Jack Flaherty. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. That audio courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest. That was the good from Saturday's performance by Jack Flaherty. Does finish the day with four strikeouts. Does not allow a hit. And zero earned runs. That's all very positive, Alex. Sounds there like a is great also performance. The negative side of thing, which is seven walks and a hit by pitch. Jack Flaherty's outing 
I think Ollie Marmel summed it up well when he said this after the game on Saturday. I'm actually proud of him. If you look at that start, he's got a C game. Uh, he's not timed up. He's not synced up. It's not feeling right as far as just uh, being able to land his stuff and um, throw the fastball where he wants, and he's still battled through that. And when you look at just his ability to keep his composure, I think we took a big step in the right direction today as far as just keeping his cool. That seems like when you're like you know, little league softball and you strike out seven times in the game, but you walk away from it and your dad's like, I'm proud of you, son. I know you're joking, but I'm actually being serious when I say this. I agree with Ollie. I think that what you saw on Saturday, if Adam Wainwright had the exact same outing, we would all be sitting here saying today, man, vintage Wayno. He just found a way. Found a way yeah, to get you through 41 five. years old. Uh, but we did this at any point in his career. We gave him credit, which was deserved for battling through not having your best stuff and finding a way to give your team a chance to win. Lining For people that believe that the win stat matters for pitchers, and there are still a lot of them, getting through five, lining yourself up for the win, and getting out of the game without having your best stuff is something to be commended for. And so I'm not going to sit here today and be a fraud if I'm going to give Adam Wainwright the credit for doing something like that. I will also do the same thing for Jack Flaherty. I think he deserves a lot of credit for doing something that, frankly, last year and a couple of years ago, I don't think he was capable of, which is keeping his emotions in check and finding a way to battle through without having his best stuff. That dude was throwing 90 miles per hour on his fastball for most of the day because he did not have any command whatsoever, and so he dialed it back. Hell, at times, he just completely ditched his fastball. He was throwing using his secondary pitches. So I will give him a lot of credit for that. And so in the micro of just a let's evaluate that one performance, hey, man, good for you, Jack. Like not no jokes about it. Good on him for finding a way to battle through. Let's start there and just discuss the one because I do think the bigger picture topic is much different. But the micro of that one outing, I, I'm going to give credit where it's due. Yeah, I mean the way that he ended spring training, that was best case scenario for him because if his outing would have resulted like the Miles Michaelis, I think there would be a lot more alarm bells for people watching Jack Flaherty. But the fact that he was able to get through it with a clean sheet in terms of earned runs, that's where you look at and you have the optimism. The issue there, and this is no disrespect to Jack Flaherty because he has not pitched a consecutive full season in like three years, it feels like. You need something other than that from Jack Flaherty. And maybe this is a one-off and that's fine, but if you don't get the Jack Flaherty that's providing the strikeout stuff and the command is there, then you're in for a world of hurt if you're the Cardinals because then he's just pitching like everybody else on your pitching staff right now. Jack was supposed to be that black sheep of all of the others because he was the strikeout guy while everyone else was the pitch-to-contact guy. Uh, I, I, I like to start both in short-term view and kind of in the long-term, and now, granted, He's definitely going to have to work on command with the fastball, but I'm not going to really judge him long-term until three starts into the year. That's kind of my grace period. Give everybody 15 games and three starts. I I thought, you know, I agree with BK. I I don't think he gets five innings in recent years. I I think he's out by the third inning probably, and the Cardinals don't have a long man in their bullpen, and it was a shortened bullpen day. Let's also give him credit there because that's where the Wayne OS thing comes into play too of, hey, our bullpen is short. We really need you to get through five innings at minimum, and he was able to do that, so credit 
where it's due. I actually thought his slider looked really good. There were a couple times where he missed on it, but I thought the slider, for the most part, looked really good. And I think that pitch is going to be set up even better the moment he's able to, if he can, find command of his fastball. And I know his velo was way down yesterday or over the weekend. I think that was, and I think he kind of said it too post-game, and I think Ollie hinted at it too, where it's basically, hey, he wasn't able to do it with his normal velo. He couldn't locate it, so he tried to take some off. Now, Grant, he still wasn't able to locate it very well. But I think you saw some signs of good things to come for Jack Flaherty because the slider looked sharp, and though it was a rough outing for him, he did finish with the four strikeouts, and he had eight swing and misses. Three of those coming on the fastball, three on the slider, and two on his knuckle curve. So I think those are signs to hopefully, I say hopefully, build off of because I I think you saw some of the old vintage Jack with his breaking stuff, and if the fastball velo comes back, which I'm hoping it does, and I think it will, then I think you're going to see Jack Flaherty of old. And this is where I go to the negative side, which is, and this is less a reflection on Jack and more a reflection on the Cardinals. I think Jack Flaherty's performance on Saturday makes me very confident he can be a part of your rotation all season long, and he'll find a way. He's going to be a solid mid-rotation starter. And that's not necessarily inherently a bad thing. Jack Flaherty as a mid-rotation starter is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think Tanner might be right in that he regains his command of his fastball eventually. It might take a little while, but he regains uh, command of that, and then everything else plays off of it. That makes a lot of sense to me. The problem is, what I saw on Saturday, I can't project that to be a number one. I can't. It's really hard for me to do. And maybe he gets there eventually, but in the macro, and this is where I, I talked about the micro with being really impressed with the way that he was able to bounce back from especially that first inning and having zero control whatsoever. The macro of it is the Cardinals built their team in a certain way and their rotation is kind of like their lineup was a year ago where it was if Goldie and Arenado weren't hitting, you're screwed. And we saw what the result of that was in the postseason. If they don't have number one ace level pitcher, Jack Flaherty, they have nobody else that can be that guy and they've got to go find somebody that can. And that's where it's, I thought, a disappointing performance for the Cardinals more than Jack Flaherty on Saturday because I I can't project that guy to become the number one starter that we were looking for. I thought as the lights came on and it's, it's regular season time, you're going up against a big-time lineup, maybe that's when Jack, it all clicks into form for him. It didn't at all on Saturday. His velocity was down. Stuff was down. Slider, you could make an argument, was pretty good, but he was missing with it, I thought, more than maybe you did. And that's just an eyeball thing. We can disagree on that. And I do think it's set up by the fastball, and he had zero command of his fastball. So they were sit and spin on Saturday. So I get it. They're spitting on all of that. I, I just, I think in the big picture sense, I was more discouraged than encouraged by Jack's outing on Saturday. He's going to have more opportunities. It's not a referendum on him. He can make this thing get back on track. Super quickly, if he's able to find his form. But uh, as of today, like our, I said, I think it was like a six in terms of my level of one to ten concern meter for him. I'm at about an eight in him being a number one starter. My concern level for that right now. I'm still confident he can be a starter for you. My concern for him being a number one guy, though, it's it's getting higher by the See, day. I, I'm not necessarily there yet, and maybe it's just because. I don't want to read too much into one start, and I'm not trying to like accuse you of doing that, but I, I, I look at it and I say I'm giving him three starts before I will really move my panic meter. Because if you ask me where my panic meter is from what I saw in spring to what I saw yesterday, I say it didn't move. I'd say I'm probably still about that five or six range, 
But I, I just think I saw the signs with the slider to where I still have faith that he's going to find that fastball command. And I, I think there are other factors into Saturday, too. I mean, one, it's his first start of the year. You know he's going to be amped up for it. Two, it's a very cold and windy day, which can make it tough to get a good grip on the baseball. I mean, look at Matt Chapman, gold glove third baseman, throws a ball away. So there were other factors into it. And, and I understand reading into one start because he is the guy that is going to determine what the fate of the Cardinals season is going to be, at least right now. But I, I don't want to read too much into one start. I'm going to give him two more starts. His next start comes on. I think it's scheduled for Thursday, if I'm not mistaken, when they take on Milwaukee. Friday. or Friday? Yeah, Friday. Excuse me. If he looks bad in that start, okay, I'm going to be a little bit more concerned, but I'm going to give him one more start. I always give starters three starts before I read too much into what they're doing. If he's bad, two more starts, yeah, I'm probably going to be – I'm going to skip the eight. I'm going to go right to the ten and really totally hit the fair. panic button. I think that's a reasonable way to approach it. Yeah, my I would give it five starts for Jack, considering what the last few years have been with him. There's just a little bit more leniency that goes into it, but the walks are the part that concerns me more than anything. And if it's the command and if he's addressing it afterwards, then I'll take him for his word and see what he's got in his next outing. Uh, from the 314, guys, please comment on the hype video. I know Cardinals fans focus on this stuff, and it's not just Cardinals fans. It, it's fans in general focus on this stuff. I thought it was cool. Like, I had no issues with it whatsoever. It, that's the kind of thing that a player puts out there as a hype video. Like, if you want to read into that, fine, whatever. But I could not care any less about it. I thought it was a cool hype video, and I'm a sucker for hype videos. So I, I watched the thing in its entirety. I thought it was great. Leave it to people to see a hype video from Jack Flaherty and then watching every single pitch that he throws and, like, meticulating it and writing everything down so that they can go back and bash the hype video. Like, who cares? The guy was hyped up for his first start for uh, the beginning of the season when he's been injured for the last three seasons. Like, let the guy enjoy it. Yeah, I, I didn't mind the hype video. I mean, it's Jack Flaherty. He's always got kind of that swagger to him. You've seen him when he's pitching well. He's got that swagger to him where no one can touch him. I don't, I don't mind it. We're not even talking about if he throws, hell, doesn't even walk seven in that outing. If he walks one and throws five innings and gets a win, we're not even talking about it. So I don't really care about the hype video. I thought it was actually pretty cool, too, and I was glad I wasn't one of the radio voices in it. So <laughs> yeah, I, I would say I listened to it at the beginning, and I was like, I was like, oh, okay. oh that's not are me. we going to hey, be featured in this? That happened to me on the uh, on the Stanley Cup run by the Blues. They they used uh, the video that really? they did to start like to everybody talking, and it was one of my post-game shows talking about how like they're a bad team. And I'm like, son of a, why do we have to pull that clip? Yeah, sounds about right. Hey, so, we, we've all fallen victim to that we stuff. We made the cut. I'm sure that if the Cardinals wanted to make some kind of video about like Matt Carpenter that one year where he went off for them oh, when he yeah. was batting cleanup that day, yeah, I would have been probably featured can't, prominently in that. We're wrong wait. more than what they were, we're right, and that's that's how this goes. Can't wait for Nolan Gorman to hit 40 bombs this season and they use a hype video oh, of BK and I talking about trading him in the offseason. No, I, I, I hope they use me calling him an all star because if he's hitting 40 bombs, he's going to be an all star. So that would to be the totally out of context. I didn't suggest that they. Did I say it was him. in context? <laughs> Fair. Just cut the audio, man. Uh, can we talk about one other thing pitching-wise real quick? My guy, Jordan Montgomery, looking like a stud yesterday. No, my guy, Drew Verhagen. Oh, get that. Swing and a miss. Two strikeouts for Verhagen, a one, two, three, sixth. Something special brewing in St. Louis. Something special brewing in Drew Verhagen. It's uh, called those new hips. What if this guy is good now? I tweeted that yesterday, and I think Cardinals fans are like, yeah, you might be. One and two-thirds innings so far in two appearances, three strikeouts, no walks, one hit allowed. Guys, the most impressive reliever that I've seen for the Cardinals so far is Drew Verhagen. 
more impressive than anything we've seen from Ryan Helsley. I would say second on that list is probably Zach Thompson. Third would be what we saw yesterday from Packy Naughton. All right, let's pump the Who was yeah, throwing his slider so hard that they classified it as a fastball uh, here on goes, baseball savant. Here goes BK seeing if he can get Packy in the circle of trust. Drew Verhagen, one one or two more appearances like we saw over the weekend, and he will be in my circle of trust. I mean, he faced six batters and one got on base. I mean, you can't deny the man from what he just accomplished in a series against the Toronto Blue Jays. So, yeah, my ears have perked up. I'm still a little hesitant to get excited because I know what happens when you do with bullpen pitchers. Like, oh, hell yeah, this guy. And then we all know what comes after that. But uh, he was definitely the most interesting man in that Cardinals bullpen over the weekend. Yeah, he he impressed me the most out of the bullpen. I mean, touching, I think it was 96 was the max on the fastball. And the thing, too, is the curveball looks so good. The spin on that thing. I remember last year when clearly when he wasn't healthy was, I mean, that thing would just spin up there and it would be like batting practice. And this year looks different. I mean, he had the three strikeouts. He allowed the one runner on it, as you said, and he's got five swing and misses so far and ending in two thirds. Like that's a different Drew Verhagen. That's what they thought they were getting last year. He's definitely perked my ears. I'm with BK, just like one or two more outings and we're going to be doing the circle of trust again. We'll talk to Katie Wu about everything from the weekend coming up at the top of the hour. 12 o'clock, Katie Wu, Cardinals insider for The Athletic, joins us here on the show. But coming up next, controversy from the NCAA tournament over the weekend. And can UConn become a blue blood if they win the title again this year? I think there's a pretty strong case for it. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. If you told me two weeks ago that we were going to begin an NCAA tournament segment on April 3rd, coming off of the final four weekend on the men's side with the women's side of the tournament, I would have called you crazy. I I would be shocked if that is what takes place. And yet over the weekend, by the way, that audio courtesy of ESPN as uh, Caitlin Clark stole the minds and the hearts of basically everybody that watched any moment of the women's college basketball tournament. Guys, Caitlin Clark captivated me over the weekend in a way that I was completely unprepared for. If you're not familiar with her work, she is a junior at the University of Iowa, and she is reasonably considered to be one of the greatest college basketball players on the women's side, and really, I think in general, ever. She's a three-time AP All-American. She won the Player of the Year this year. And in the NCAA tournament, here's what she has done so far. Or what she did, I guess. She averaged 36 points per game, nine assists per game, and five rebounds per game. And you may say to yourself, okay, cool, BK, but she probably did that by being a volume shooter. Nope. Well, she did. She shot a lot, but 
shot 49% from the field, including 42% from beyond the arc and 87% at the free throw line. Kaylin Clark is a bona fide superstar. And here's what was most impressive to me about her. She's also a great character. She's a trash talker. She is emotional on the court. She reminded me a lot of watching Steph Curry in the NCAA tournament, honestly. She's pulling up from the logo. She's doing crazy nonsensical stuff with the basketball. And you're like, this, this should not work. And it does for her. She put Iowa women's basketball on a national stage going into the weekend. And guys, yesterday, I watched one of the more entertaining games that I've seen. And it was on the women's side. It was LSU versus Iowa for the national title game. And I will start out by saying this. The refs robbed us from what could have been a better game. It was one of the worst officiated basketball games I have ever seen in my life. But unfortunately, and I really think this is unfortunate, most of the conversation coming off of that game yesterday, and I'm sure if you've spent any time on social media over the weekend, you've seen this, was about Angel Reese making the you-can't-see-me notion and then um, putting the ring up, saying, ring me, ring me, ring me. That's what everything came back to. Man, can I be honest for a second? I loved it. Loved every second of it. I loved it when Caitlin Clark did it. I loved it when Angel Reese did it. I love the way that Kim Mulkey was on the sidelines wearing some crazy stuff for her uh, wardrobe. I like all of it. And you know why? Because we're talking about it. Because women's college basketball has arrived in a place where it matters to people, where it had people like me who don't watch a lot during the regular season. I'm not going to be a phony and pretend like I watched a whole lot of women's college basketball during the regular season. I didn't. I watched a couple of Mizzou games, but that was about it. And so when they got me to tune in for these games, because I had heard so much about Caitlin Clark and what LSU's team was, that is unique. That is something different. And then I saw the numbers. Iowa versus South Carolina, the final four game for the women's side, was the most watched college basketball game on ESPN, men or women, since 2008. Think about that for a second. Think about all of the big-time college basketball games that you've seen in the last 15 years that have been shown on ESPN. Whatever it is that you're thinking about, the best game that you saw on ESPN more people watched Iowa versus South Carolina women's basketball on ESPN over the weekend than watched that game. That's amazing. Women's college basketball had a moment over the weekend. So for me, take all of the BS arguments aside, that is what I will take away from this weekend in the women's college basketball tournament. That was awesome to watch. Caitlin Clark, round of applause for you. Just an unbelievable tournament. She scored more points in this tournament, guys than Iowa football scored points all season long. That is how dominant she was on the women's side of things. Now, on the men's side of things, the best moment that I saw was this from San Diego State at the final buzzer. It's Butler with two seconds. He's got to put it up. And he wins it. He wins it with the jumper. A San Diego State miracle. So... The game was really fun to watch. And T-Bone, you were texting us during and saying this game lived up to all of the hype over the weekend. That, that was the San Diego State game versus FAU. And then UConn beat the brakes off of Miami. Miami never had a chance in that one over the weekend. And UConn now is in a spot where I think they might go down as one of the most dominant teams that we have ever seen in an NCAA tournament. 
Guys, I was telling you about some of these numbers over the weekend or uh, before the show today. UConn has beaten Iona by 24, St. Mary's by 15, Arkansas by 23, Gonzaga by 28, and now they just won by 13 over the weekend against Miami. So they have won every game by at least 13 points. There are only five other teams in the history of the tournament that have accomplished what UConn has done so far. Just a dominant performance from start to finish of this tournament. I I can't believe how good they've been in this tournament because they were one of those teams, and give credit to, I think it's Stoltz told us, like, hey, I've got them going to the Final Four, and I was like, UConn, really? Like, <laughs> they could lose to Iona. And, and they've just been dominant, and, and they are kind of a new blue blood, if you want to call them that. I mean, they've won all these championships, and they're going for their, was it fifth tonight, since 1999? And that's just in my lifetime. Before that, they weren't as dominant of a program. So they are a new blue blood. I think they kind of lost that title when they had that. We were talking about the coach in the office. uh, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Jim Calhoun. No, no, after Jim Calhoun. Kevin Ollie. Kevin Ollie, who had the one good year where he won a title, and then it was just downhill from there. Like they kind of fell off the map for a little bit, but UConn basketball is back, and I, I think they are the n- kind of new blue blood of college basketball. I mean, th- this run from 1999 till now is most college championships of any program, better than North yeah. Carolina, Kentucky. Like That's we wild. were going through it this morning because I was like, man, can, can UConn be a blue blood? And then we went through who has the most titles uh, since 2000, basically in our adult li- or our conscious lives, Alex, and. The answer is UConn. Like, UConn has more titles than anybody, and which they're is, going for a fifth one now. Which is wild because you'd think teams like Kansas or Duke or Kentucky or North Carolina would be that team. And, like, UConn just, they they fly under the radar with this type of success. And, and they've done it without, they've had a couple of, like, superstars go there, like Cardiac Kemba, for example. Uh, Napier was there. But, like, those are the first two that come to mind. And maybe there's somebody else I'm you forgetting. You missed out on some of the early 2000s team where they had Mecca Okafor, Ben Gordon. Like, they had some beast. superstars early but on. But, yeah, it, recently still, they have. It. It, it's still not like Kentucky where it's like, okay, I can name, like, two <laughs> yeah. NBA teams from Kentucky. So what UConn's been able to do has been not just impressive in this tournament, but impressive since 1999 and how this program has suddenly come onto the map because when you think UConn, you think basketball. You certainly don't think about their football program. But I, I've been really impressed with what they've done in this tournament. I, I think they're going to win again tonight. Like Just the way they have played throughout this NCAA tournament is one of the most dominant performances I can remember. Since 1998, these six teams have combined to win 17 of the 24 national titles that were possible. Kentucky, Duke, Kansas, Villanova, North Carolina, Connecticut, Michigan State. Those are the teams that have combined to to win 17 of the 24 national titles. Wow. When people ask the question, who are the blue blood programs in college basketball? Indiana is one of the names that comes up because of their history. And it's, it's totally reasonable. Their history should put them on that pedestal. I kind of view it a little bit differently. Like in college football, I think you can make a pretty strong case that Clemson and Oregon, for example, kind of made their way into the conversation of current blue blood football programs. I think Villanova and UConn have made their way into that conversation on the basketball side of things. Um, And now, especially if UConn wins that title tonight, uh, and I I believe that they will, they will be certainly included into that mix. Do you guys have a pick for tonight's game between UConn and San Diego State? It's UConn minus seven. I I think they win this thing in a blowout. Yeah, and I think it was... Simple cover with the minus seven also for how they've won their games prior to this. Yeah, I I like UConn too. I I think... 
when you look at the, how San Diego State won in the final four, FAU was up 10-plus with, I think, yeah. 10 minutes to go. But then FAU's offense went cold. I don't see UConn's offense going cold like FAU's did. So I think UConn wins it. I think they end up covering by a big margin. I do find myself rooting for San Diego State just because oh, they're not, not a— Wow! Just because I hate the way they play basketball. I don't really care about the way they play. I just like it better because they're not a power conference. They're not in a power conference. I like kind of the underdog storyline with them. So I find myself rooting for San Diego State. But if I take out my heart's pick and go with what my mind sees, and I, I would definitely take UConn in this one. Coming up next, three one four three nine 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 six four six is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers here on one hundred and one ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers. Brought to you by Insperity. Do HR issues have you boxed in? Expand your possibilities at Insperity.com. And I'm Brandon Kylie. In five minutes, we're talking to Katie with the Cardinals insider for The Athletic. We'll ask her about Jack Flaherty, Brendan Donovan, Nolan Gorman, and Drew Verhagen. We'll do all of that coming up here in just about five minutes or so. But first, some of your questions, 314-399-9646. We'll start with this one from the 314. Guys, which Cardinals pitcher concerns you the most after what we saw in the very short sample size over the weekend? Jack Flaherty, Ryan Helsley, or Jordan Hicks? Jordan Hicks. Um, because it's kind of a, a string of concerns with Jordan Hicks. Like Ryan Helsley's going to be fine. Ryan Helsley was awesome in spring training and last year. Uh, and Jack Flaherty, like we've talked about, there's a little bit more leniency with that. But Jordan Hicks right now is throwing the ball fast, and that's about it because it's also getting knocked around and it's missing the strike zone. So I don't have as much concern on Hicks because I think you can replace him um, with Drew Verhagen potentially if Verhagen ends up being what we think. And this has just been Jordan Hicks throughout his career. I still think Jack Flair is the guy that I'm going to trust to get back to himself. I, Ryan Helsley, he's taken some velo off of his fastball, and I don't think he's been as effective by doing so. And I don't know if he's doing it on purpose to have more longevity throughout his career or through the season. Or the pitch clock's affecting him. I don't think it's the pitch clock, but I just have to throw that out there. I find myself somewhat a little concerned with Ryan Helsley. It's not a lot because I don't think he's been awful. But when he's taking that tick down on the fastball velo, it just doesn't seem to be as... He doesn't seem as efficient, and he doesn't seem as dominant so far in the season. So... His underlying metrics are still pretty good. The weird part is that he's not missing bats. And that is something that last year he had one of the highest strikeout rates in Major League Baseball at 40 percent. Basically two out of every five guys that went up to the plate, they were striking out against Ryan Helsley. So far this year, again, super small sample size, but that's what we've got to work with. It's 15 percent. That is exceptionally low for a guy like that that has his kind of stuff. So I would say Ryan Helsley's the one that I'm keeping my eye on the most so far just because of what T-Bone mentioned with the velocity. It's not down a ton, but it's down about a mile and 1.5 miles per hour. So it's worth monitoring. And that would probably be the guy that I've got my eye on the most out of these three options. Uh, from the 314, T-Bone, will direct this to you. I know you were the one that was paying the closest attention to it over the weekend. What did we learn from City and their loss over the weekend? The first loss of their season. I, I think in their first loss, it comes down to, you know, if there's a team that is great defensively and can really pack it in, 
it kind of slows down City's offense. I, I think you saw they couldn't really get the high press going. And Minnesota, to their credit, basically threw everybody back and were looking for a breakout. So essentially, they would get a turnover from City or there'd be a shot and they get the save. And they would look to just take off from there. I, I thought the uh, counterattack from Minnesota was really good. I thought City struggled to defend it, uh, especially in the second half. And that's, of course, when they give up the goal on a late challenge from Hebert there. I... I, I just think you saw where if a team really packs it in defensively, they can really slow down City. But with that being said, I don't think there's going to be a lot of teams that can slow down City the way Minnesota did. I, I thought Minnesota just played an excellent game and were able to get those breakout attempts to get down the field and lead to their one goal. Yeah, that's my biggest thing. It's just I think that City, really Minnesota, was uniquely qualified to be able to shut down City offensively because we've seen them do this all year long. They they don't get teams do not get shots against Minnesota. The only team that allows fewer is Red Bull in, in New York. So um, we saw that we saw that play out and City did get a decent amount of opportunities yeah. in that game relative to what other teams do against them. But they're, they're, they're still, really they're tough. I still held all the outside too quite a bit. I, I think you're also seeing, and this is props to City SC for how they've started the season, you're seeing more teams make a cognizant effort to not make mistakes in these matches. For sure. Because they know how good City is at exploiting those mistakes on the field. Coming up next, Katie Wu, the Cardinals insider for 101 ESPN, The Athletic, and KSDK. I want to ask her about Nolan Gorman's outburst over the weekend. Plus, what did she see from Jack Flaherty? And is Drew Verhagen working his way into her circle? of trust. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Happy to go out to the 101 ESPN hotline to be joined by Katie Wu. She's the Cardinals insider for 101 ESPN, The Athletic, and KSDK. She had a great piece earlier today up on The Athletic, right? Recapping the Cardinals' first series of the season. You can, of course, follow her on Twitter at Katie J. Wu. Katie, we appreciate the time as always. How you doing after the first weekend of the season? Hello, fellas. Happy Monday. You know, the first series of the season is always a little weird to me because it's usually three day games and it takes a while to get into a routine. And today it kind of just feels like the season is back. You know, we have a 645 game tonight. The the opening day fanfare, while it's always so awesome, has subsided. And now it's just time to settle in for a you know, 159 and probably more games to go. Well, it's got to be the two and a half hour timing on these games, Katie. Like you feel like you got so much more to do with your life now that you get that extra 30 plus minutes. That extra 30 plus minutes definitely matters. But honestly, during the games, with the exception of Thursday, where I was like, is this going to be a five hour baseball game? What are we doing? (laughs) Um, I really haven't noticed too much of a change. And if you, it's crazy to me how little I'm thinking about the pitch clock. um, Unless there's a violation. I truly haven't really noticed that big of a difference. I think because we're seeing so much continuous action, it, it's kind of easy to forget about. Yeah, it, it takes away the bad part of the game, which is just the standing around, and it it I think highlights more of the action, which is what we saw a lot of over the weekend, specifically with this Cardinals offense, Katie. And that's what I wanted to lead off with from you, which is man, does this team have a deep lineup? You saw on Saturday, they didn't have their two-hole hitter or their five-hole hitter, and the two guys that were able to replace them in those two spots end up having big days over the weekend. What did you see in the first weekend of the season from the Cardinals when it comes to the depth of their lineup? 
Yes, the depth of this Cardinals lineup, let's talk about it because there's a lot we can dive into. So I think the way of phrasing this, I like the CK when you say the Cardinals are missing their two-hole hitter and their five-hole hitter. Well, usually in seasons past, if that was the case, it was not a great look for St. Louis. You know, the, the lineup would have a lot of holes. You kind of expected it to be a low-scoring game. What the Cardinals showed over the weekend was that they actually have a 12-person deep lineup. I mean, let's go through some of these offensive highlights. They scored 22 runs in three games, banged out 41 hits. Brennan Donovan, leadoff hitter, already has two homers this season. He had five all of last year. Nolan Gorman has reached base safely eight times uh, and obviously homered twice on Sunday. Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arnato, Tommy Edmond, and Jordan Walker have all hit safely in three games. And then when you have Lars Meepar on the bench for two days and you have Tyler O'Neill on the bench after a rest day on Sunday, what do the reserves do? Well, Alex Burleson comes in on Sunday. He records three hits, homers to the opposite field. Dylan Carlson, three singles yesterday, all hard-hit balls. It just seems like one through nine, and honestly, maybe even one through 10, 11, when you consider those bench guys, that this legitimately is a deep lineup. And when we're talking to President of Baseball Operations, John Mazalock, on opening day, I asked him what the most underrated trait of the club was, and he was not sure he would describe the depth as being underrated, but he did think that, you know, when you think about the Cardinals, you think about the defense, you think about their base running reputation, and you know them to be good at those things. But he thinks the depth could surprise some people, and I think it did this weekend. So, Katie, back. let's stick with Brendan Donovan because, I, I mean, I, I was excited to see what Brendan Donovan had to offer this season for how good of a year he had last year. But I don't know if I expected this type of Brendan Donovan. What are realistic expectations for this individual this season? Brendan Donovan could be a dude, right? I mean, we we saw the de- the defensive versatility. That's my favorite thing, by the way. Brendan Donovan, Nolan Gorman, doodle alert. I love how I in baseball really... it's like, hey, stuff is how you describe right. if a pitcher is throwing well, and then you yeah. you like describe players as a guy or a dude. Yeah, I was gonna say like, what's the measuring <laughs> stick? Like, you know, like what's what's dude measuring sticks right well, now? Guy is ju- just a guy, so, or you're a dude. Guy would be Brendan bench Donovan. bat, and dude would be like an all star. You get it. You get it. What happens yeah, after all star? A stud. Oh, oh legend. Stud. I like that. A stud. A guy, a dude, <laughs> or a stud. Donovan working his way into Someone, the dude section. Someone needs to get him a t-shirt that says stud muffin. <laughs> I love it. I just love these segments. I never know where they're going to go. But, okay, back to Brendan Donovan. <laughs> I, I think he was all around a pretty complete player last year, obviously. You don't win a utility gold glove the first ever by being just okay defensively. And I've said this before. I think Donovan and his overall versatility, both uh, hitting-wise and from the field, makes this lineup click. What he didn't really have in his game last year was power, and that was okay because he did everything else so well. He got on base. He's fast. Again, he can play everywhere on the diamond. If Brendan Donovan can go ahead and pop some, uh, pop some balls over the fence from the leadoff spot, where are opposing pitchers going to go? Because after Donovan, you have Lars Newbar who has some pop. We know about Paul Goldschmidt. We know about Nolan Arnado. We know about Wilson Contreras. Arguably one of the toughest hard, uh, middle of the order in baseball. And then you look at the length of the lineup now with Nolan Gorman's emergence. You have Tyler O'Neill. You have Jordan Walker. There's really no place to go where you're not seeing that power. So I think the, the, the early showings for Brendan Donovan, even dating back to spring, have been especially encouraging and lengthen the lineup even more. So as we continue on the discussion of the positive things from this weekend, Alec Burleson yesterday, whoo, buddy, what a day for him. I was a little surprised, Katie. I got to admit, when Alec Burleson got the nod on Saturday when Lars Newtbar was out of the lineup, 
I get it to a degree where it's like, hey, he's a left-handed bat. He has the contact profile that they were looking for against a quality starter on the other side. That all makes sense to me. But if you just said going into spring training, hey, second game of the season, Lars Newtbar is out. Are you going Alec Burleson or Dylan Carlson there? I would have said in a heartbeat, well, Dylan Carlson gets that start for you in the outfield. Did we learn on Saturday that Alec Burleson is over Dylan Carlson in terms of the standing right now for this team? I don't think so, but I do understand why that perception might be the case. I think when you're looking at the matchups, like you mentioned, Burleson profiled from a swing perspective against Kevin Gossman better than Dylan did. You know, Gossman has a lot of swing and miss. So does Dylan in his game, and those two just didn't match up. Alec Burleson, of course, profiled for contact, and as we saw on Sunday, does have the power when needed. I think we'll see a lot of how Dylan Carlson is used based on the opposing matchups. And I hesitate to call Dylan a platoon player because I actually think that Dylan is arguably their best defensive center fielder. He definitely looks the most comfortable. Tyler O'Neill looks a little late on the first step, but, you know, it's fast enough to make up for it. So I'm, I'm sure we'll see Dylan in different spots. I actually don't think that there is a, a pecking order, if you will, in the outfield. I think it's just a matter of who profiles well against the defense and who profiles well against the opposing pitcher. Um, and this is a good problem to have when you have four to five very capable outfielders that can play more or less all over the field. We talk a lot about how Brendan Donovan makes this outfield click, or infield click, excuse me. I think we'll see that with Dylan Carlson and the outfield configuration as well. He, I know it looks like he's kind of on the short end of the stick right now, but I think the Cardinals are just trying to find a way to use him and maximize him in the best way they can. It's going to take a little bit to figure that out. But so far, like we saw on Sunday, when the matchup is right, Dylan can absolutely be an impact player. Oh, Katie, there is a pecking order in the bullpen, and it starts with, of course, Ryan Helsley and when healthy Giovanni Gallegos. But is Drew Verhagen now a part of that pecking order after one and two-third innings pitched? I'm very, very close to putting Drew Verhagen in the circle of trust. I like my, my rule for evaluating people is I got to see three starts from a starting pitcher before I make any narrative. I'd like to see four to five from a reliever. But Drew Verhagen, again, going back to spring and what he saw or what we saw in the first two outings, he looks pretty nasty. This looks like the Drew Verhagen the Cardinals were looking for when they signed him last year. And truly, I think the, the difference maker is his hip. He's healthy, so he can pitch. And we're seeing all these different pitches in his arsenal. He's effective. He's painting corners. He's confident. It takes a lot for a player to come out for his first start of, or his first appearance of the season. And the first, the song that he uses is a Jay-Z song. And the first line is, allow me to reintroduce myself. And when Drew Verhagen walked out to that song, I stopped in my tracks and I said, oh, this guy is back. And I can't necessarily proclaim that all the way yet. Again, we got to see him a little more, but he certainly looks encouraging. I don't think the Cardinals expect Gallegos to be out that much longer, but if he is, that is right now the right-hander I'm looking for in the late innings That's when you're not using Brian Helsley. So follow-up, Katie, why is Drew Verhagen not using Shakira's hips don't lie out of the bullpen? God, I knew that was coming. Oh, you know what? That's actually, I want to hate it. I want to hate the joke, but it's actually a don't really hate good it. one. Don't hate it, Katie. <laughs> I'll give you that. I'll D- give you it. Don't hate the player. Hate the game. Okay. We took it one step too far. <laughs> Katie Wu is our guest here on 101 ESPN. Uh, you can find her work over at The Athletic. She also does some work this year with KSDK. You can find all of that on Twitter at Katie J. Wu. 
All right, Katie, that is all the good. It was overwhelmingly positive in the first three games oh, of the season for the Cardinals. Here it comes. <laughs> here it is. Buzz Killington, ladies and gentlemen. Time to talk about the starting pitching. And, of course, the headliner with that is Jack Flaherty, who, hey, you want to be positive, didn't allow a hit, didn't allow a run over the weekend. No hitter in my eyes. Let's not mention the fact that he did allow seven walks and hit a batter, so he allowed eight base runners in five innings, ended up throwing just 49 strikes on 95 pitches. His velocity was down a couple miles an hour. Uh, Katie, I mentioned earlier, I'm curious your thoughts on the outing from Jack Flaherty. In the micro, I, I thought what Ollie said is true. Like, if, if Adam Wainwright had that exact same performance, we would be falling all over ourselves to say, man, what an impressive way to find a way to get you're through so five right. innings. When, oh, man, you're so right. When Jack does it, we're like, man, if only he had his good stuff, maybe then he could be an ace. And so, like, I, I do, that's where I fall on it in the micro. In the macro, and this is not Jack's fault, it's a Cardinals thing, they need so much from him to be that number one starter this year. And what I saw from him on Saturday, you mentioned it, I think it's totally fair to say, hey, I need a few starts before I can make any real bite. big picture takeaways. But what we saw on Saturday did not look like the stuff of a number one starter. And I think that's a Cardinals problem that they may eventually have to fix. And so I think it's almost like two separate buckets that kind of get put into the same one sometimes. What was your takeaway from Jack Flaherty's start over the weekend? Yeah, those are those are some really great points, and it, it's hard to evaluate Jack because there there are so many high expectations for him. At the same time, he welcomes those expectations. He feels confident in his way to be able to shoulder that weight, and whether or not that's fair is a different argument. But what we saw from Jack yesterday, he'd be the or Saturday. Sorry, I don't even know my days. We're three games into the season. I have no idea what's going on. Oh. What we saw from Jack on Saturday. He'd be the first to say, not an ideal line, not a conventional start. I mean, anytime he walks seven batters, he said it himself, that's not pitching. Seven walks is not pitching. But I was encouraged by the way Jack carried himself throughout that start because we saw, especially last year, when Jack didn't have command, when Jack was struggling, when Jack was putting guys on base, you saw the body language. You saw him get frustrated. You saw him spiral. And more often than not, he's out of there by the second or third inning. I remember we saw that multiple times last season. This time from Jack, I thought we saw a really mature Flaherty, one who said, okay, I don't have my fastball command, and that's my biggest takeaway. Like, that's the biggest point of emphasis that Ollie Marmol mentioned to the media before Jack starts, was he has to have his fastball command. Didn't have it. So what does he do? He takes some velocity off, he makes the adjustment, and he finds a way to get through five, and he never once showed frustration on the mound. And certainly, I mean, we know Jack, he was frustrated. He's not a start that he loved. But his ability to keep it together, make the mid-game adjustments, get through five, and figure out what was working for him, and especially that uh, bottom or the, the fifth inning where he got that one, two, three inning and got the strikeout on the curveball, that was a great way to end it. So, long way of saying, is that an ideal start from Jack? Absolutely not. Is it encouraging that he was able to make those adjustments and figure it out? Absolutely. I think April will be a very telling month for the entire pitching staff. Again, it's only been three games that no quality start has been recorded. And I think Jack, of course, we've talked about this all season, who will have some heavy expectations to fix that pitching staff. But I'm not really freaking out over one start. I'm, I think that the Cardinals and Jack have warranted that trust one more time to try it again and see what they have with him. 
She's Katie Wu. You can find her work over at The Athletic. We chat with her each and every Monday here on BK and Ferrario. We always appreciate her giving us some of her time. You can follow her on Twitter at Katie J. Wu. Katie, appreciate the time as always. Enjoy the game tonight. You got some good ones to start out the season. Toronto, Atlanta, Milwaukee, not so bad. Uh, Enjoy the game between Jake Woodford and Charlie Morton. We'll talk with you again next week. You got it, guys. Thanks so much. You got it. That's Katie Wu joining us here on 101 ESPN, as she does each and every Monday. Uh, Alex, we did get this uh, text from somebody who said, guys, the standard for a 41-year-old, Adam Wainwright, who throws 88, is and should be a lot different than the standard of a pitcher with the nasty stuff that Jack Flaherty has, who is still in his prime. I agree with that, but I would also say this. I think if we're going to criticize Jack in the past for not battling through the way that he did on Saturday, then we also have to be fair to him and give him credit when he is able to do exactly that. As Katie said, he made adjustments in game. He took some velo off to be able to try, and it didn't work all the time, but try to get some more command. He pitched to contact, and he found a way to get through five scoreless innings. Man, if we were going to give John Gant credit when he did that, if we're going to give Adam Wainwright credit when he does it, then yeah, I'm also going to give Jack Flaherty credit when he clearly does not have his best stuff. In fact, had some of his worst stuff, zero command whatsoever. And he battles through against a damn good Blue Jays lineup that a lot of people think could propel them to the World Series this year. Yeah, I'm going to give him credit for, for what he was able to do on Saturday. doesn't make me super optimistic about what the rest of the season is going to look like, but I'll give him credit where it's due. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to discount what he did against the Toronto Blue Jays. That was impressive to, to not give up a hit, not give up a run. And with all of those walks, you found ways to get out of those tight jams. The only issue is, you know, he's put himself on that pedestal of wanting to be that ace, that stud in the rotation. And that's why I'm going to I'm going to enjoy what he did in that game, but still be concerned looking forward because you want to see the best out of Jack Flaherty and I'm sure he would be putting those same standards on himself of saying yeah great I got through that game and didn't give up a hit didn't give up a run but it still wasn't good enough and so the the way the standards he puts on himself are the way that I'm looking at Jack Flaherty coming up next we talked about Dylan Carlson a bit there with Katie Wu what's the plan for him this season and did we learn more with the actions than the words over the weekend about how the Cardinals view him right now. We'll talk about that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tommy Edmund at third base. Ball it into right center field. Springer's on the run. Burleson's got another extra base hit. A homer and two doubles for Burleson. It's 9-3. That audio courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest. A big day yesterday by Alec Burleson, and he had a big weekend on Saturday, getting the nod in left field over Dylan Carlson. And Alex, this surprised me. I got to be honest with you. Coming into the season, if you would have told me, hey, game two, Lars Newbar is going to be out. You're going up against Kevin Gossman. You need somebody to make a, a spot start for you there. Who are you going with? Are you going Alec Burleson, left-handed hitter, going up against a right-handed pitcher? Makes some sense from that perspective. Or are you going Dylan Carlson, who you'd like to find out what you have with him? And he did show, as Tanner mentioned many times during spring training, some real progress against right-handed pitching. Which one are you going with as your starter there? I would have assumed, because I thought that Alec Burleson was like the 12th man in terms of your position players, 
I would have assumed that Dylan Carlson gets that start. They went with Alec Burleson over him on Saturday, and Ollie Marmel told the media that it came down to the average vertical break on Kevin Gossman's fastball. Quote, the Cardinals felt that Burleson would do well versus the hop on Gossman's fastball, end quote. That came from Derek Gould. Alex, I always say, listen to their actions, not their words, when it comes to what the Cardinals are telling us. Did their actions over the weekend tell us that Alec Burleson is actually ahead of Dylan Carlson on their outfield depth chart right now? In as bad as absolutely. I, I think to Katie's point, the defense for Dylan Carlson would trump Alec Burleson, but this lineup's not based on defense anymore. It's based on offense. And yeah, I mean, look, the fact that you were going up against their second best pitcher and they chose to go with Alec Burleson, who is a rookie, over a Dylan Carlson, who they were so high on after last year's trade deadline, tells you everything that you need to know. Now, throughout the season, I would probably say that Dylan Carlson gets more starts uh, than Alec Burleson, just because of, depending on how things go, like you're going to want to see more of Dylan Carlson. But look, if the bat plays right there, you're going to see Alec Burleson against those types of pitchers, and the fact that he's a lefty works in his favor even more so. Tanner, do you agree with that? Do you think that Dylan Carlson, it's an interesting statement, Alex. Do you think that Dylan Carlson gets more starts this year than Alec Burleson? Let's assume health for both. I would probably say no right now, just based on what we saw. I mean, I was stunned that they went to Alec Burleson over Same. Dylan Carlson. I and, and batted him second, not just not yeah. just started him, but then put him in the lineup batting second in the order, which I found to be really interesting, and I think it tells you their confidence level right now in Alec Burleson. They didn't put him in there and then say, you know what, he's going to bat seventh, and we're going to move everybody else up a spot. They immediately put him into the two-hole, which means that you're going to get a heck of a lot more opportunities. Which, yes, means they have confidence in him. And it feels weird because, I mean, all the way up until like the final week of spring, I didn't think he was on the roster. But he got hot at the right time, and Carlson hit right-handed pitching all all spring, really. Uh, I, I, I found it shocking in all that mumble-jumbo Ollie's said to the media there. I mean, that's basically just trying to disguise the fact of that, yes, Burleson's our fourth outfielder. I mean, if Carlson's not a guy you're going to start against a guy with swing and miss because Burleson's a contact hitter, well, then Burleson's contact equals against one through five starters. So I I find it a little surprising, but the results showed over the weekend. I mean, look, Alec Burleson had a really good weekend. Right, He was right on par with Carlson. In fact, I think he was better than Carlson because he hit the ball harder. And that's not taking away anything from Carlson. I mean, he still had three hits against right-handed pitching, but I, I do think right now they are viewing it as Alec Burleson is our top, uh, is our fourth outfielder and our top bench bat when it comes to against right-handed pitching. Now, when it gets to left-handers, that's where I think the equation changes a little Agreed. bit. Where I think Carlson's that first bench bat. I, I would be shocked if he's behind Taylor Modder. No offense, Modder, love you, but probably Carlson's ahead of you there. Uh, but that's where I think it gets interesting. Is I, I think when they get to lefties, they'll view Carlson as that guy. But against right-handed pitching, it's clear they view Carlson behind Alec Burleson right now. As an example, tomorrow. Uh, Gentleman by the name of Dylan Dodd is expected to start for the Atlanta Braves against you. Uh, by the way, reminder, every team has a pitcher that they don't want to be in their rotation. Dylan Dodd, I would imagine, is probably that guy for the Atlanta Braves right now. He's a 24-year-old yeah. lefty uh, that is making his major league debut tomorrow. Again, that's the expected starter for them. He's a lefty. He's going to be on the mound. My assumption is Dylan Carlson probably gets the start there. And he probably should get the I, start there. I don't know if he will because... Interesting. They went to, the, let's not forget, in the Toronto series. And look, I get it. It's early in the year, so you're still testing guys like in spring training. But they went lefty, Tim, or what was it, Mesa, Tim Mesa, I think is his name. 
against the top of the order in Donovan and Newt Bar, and they did not pinch hit for Newt Bar. Or that's the guy that I thought they were, because that's the spot where it is, hey, you know, but at that point last year when we're talking August, September, Ollie's pinch hitting for Lars, I would think, for Dylan Carlson because of the splits. Now, he didn't do that there, and that's not saying he won't start him this weekend, but O'Neal's coming off an off day. You've got uh, Newt Bar coming off back-to-back games off because of a jammed thumb, and they want Walker in the lineup as much as possible. So I, I don't know unless they're going to give Walker a day off, but my expectation right now would be he's not in the starting lineup unless it's at DH maybe. 314-399-9646. I knew this was coming at some point from the 314. Guys, you are so overreactive. You were shocked that Carlson didn't get the start before Burleson against a particular starter for the second game of the season. Give me a break. Carlson did hit the ball hard and got three hits yesterday. Why don't you let this play out before you start to overreact? I don't think anybody here is overreacting. I think that we were all really surprised by the Cardinals' decision, and it clearly worked out for them. It ended up being, I would argue, the right decision. And then yesterday, I thought it was even interesting there, too, because they end up giving Carlson the start— But look at where Carlson was in the order, and then look at where Burleson was in the order. They value Burleson's bat over Carlson's right now. And I think that's the right way to go about it. And I just, I find it really interesting and and intriguing, compelling, that the Cardinals, coming off of the year that Dylan Carlson had, where they explained it away, maybe excused it, whatever you want to call it, saying, hey, it was the wrist. It was the hand. He he was not healthy. Okay, cool. I could buy into that. That's fine. I get it. I, we've all seen this where a guy has a bad year. Look at Drew Verhagen. Bad year. It was hurt. He was hurt and then comes back this year. Looks great. Ryan Helsley. Bad year. He was hurt. Comes back last year. Was one of the most dominant players in Major League Baseball. So, yeah, maybe that ends up being Carlson. Comes back. Has a pretty good spring, really. It ends up uh, the last latter stages of the spring hitting the ball really well, especially against right-handed pitching. You get into the regular season. As Burleson getting the opportunities over Dylan Carlson, despite Carlson clearly being a better defender, that to me is interesting, especially given what the profiles were for those two players. Carlson was a borderline top 100 prospect, or excuse me, Burleson was a borderline top 100 prospect. Carlson was the top prospect in the system when he came up to the Cardinals. So it's surprising. I'm not trying to overstate anything. I'm not telling you that Carlson's going to get no opportunities. I personally think he's going to start tomorrow. I, I think he'll get an opportunity against the lefty on the mound. That would be my guess, especially with uh, Newt Bar still dealing, even if he's close to 100%, not quite there, uh, with that thumb injury. But I don't think he's going to get as many opportunities as we all expected him to this season. When I planned this thing out and I did my nerdy Excel spreadsheet of where you get the opportunities, I thought Carlson would start like four days a week. I think it's going to be closer to one or two. Where did he, now you said this, where did he finish in our top 20 most important Cardinals? Because I know I had him in my top 20, and I know for a fact I did not have Alec Burleson in my top 20 because my expectation was Burleson or Yepes were going to be kind of that 12th man on the roster. In fact, I know I had Yepes on my top 20. We had Carlson at 14. I had him at 12. You had him at 13. Alex had him at 18. I think if we did the list today, I would be closer to Alex's ranking of being agree. at the back end of the top 20 most important Cardinals. And Alec Burleson probably would be in that potentially 12 to 13 range of where he's at right now. Burleson is not in any of our top 20s. Was not in any of our top 20s. I mean, when we did players. that top 20 list, I expected him to be starting the year with Memphis. Same. Same. I didn't expect him to be getting this opportunity. Coming up next, Jordan Cairo showed both the good and the bad in his game over the weekend. What does it mean in the big picture? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 
Jairu, shoot, score! They backed him off. He made him pay. Jordan Kairu snaps it in his 35th of the year. Kairu, he scores! Jordan Kairu, redemption, 3-3 the score. That's what it sounded like right here on 101 ESPN yesterday as Jordan Kairu puts a couple in the back of the net. He now has 36 goals on the season, 71 points on the season as well. And alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Alex, we saw both the good and the bad. And really, I think it was to the extreme with Jordan Kyrou over the weekend. On Saturday, you could argue one of his worst games of the season. And we all saw the scene at the end of, what was that, the second period? Yeah. Where he gives up the, the turnover. It ends up with a shorthanded goal going back the other way. And him and Craig Berube are getting into it at the steps going into the locker room at the end of the second period. And then on Saturday, a couple of goals. I thought played an all-around well-rounded game. Alex, what did you take of Kairou from the weekend? And was that symbolic of the season that he's had this year for the Blues? Yeah, I mean, look, you can sit here and talk about uh, the poor defensive play of Jordan Kairou all you want, but now he's four goals away from having 40 on the season. Like, it's an impressive uh, season for him, but it's had a lot of ups and downs. And, I mean, that game against Nashville was, like, that felt like the boiling point that it was building up towards this season because as much as we've seen Baruby and Kairou bark at each other on the bench, I've never seen Craig Baruby, who visibly turns around, stops what he is doing to turn around and address Jordan Kairou. But here's the thing. Baruby went right back to Kairou in the third period and played him probably the most of any forward because essentially what that was was, look, you think you're better than what these mistakes are showing, go out and prove it to me. And he had a good third period against Nashville. It's just that second period. But what I loved about it from Kairou was he played one of his best all-around games against a really good Boston Bruins team yesterday and went up against the top line of that Boston Bruins team. Like, I know that they didn't have Patrice Bergeron, but still, Kairou was noticeable on the defensive side just as much as the offensive side. This is what you're going to have with the 24-year-old who continues to grow in the NHL. You're going to have these growing pains. And Craig Berube is the type of head coach that you can score 50, 60 goals on the season. You could be Connor McDavid for Craig Berube, but he wants a little bit more responsibility on the other side of the ice. Because if you don't provide that, then you're going to be looking at what this blue season has been all about. Sure, you can score six, seven goals in a game, but when you're giving up eight that's the problem, and I know it's, well, it's the defense, it's the goaltending. That Nashville Predators game had nothing to do with defense and nothing to do with goaltending and everything to do with turning the puck over in the offensive zone and creating odd man rushes the other way. Yeah, you could make an argument it was all of the above, but it was certainly, it started with the problems it's, in the, the, the it's offensive a, zone. It's a trickle-down effect. Sure. Like, the defense is not put in an odd man rush situation when they're trying to be aggressive in the offensive zone if you're not turning the puck over, and there's not much your goaltender to, can do when it's a three-on-one the other way. And to your point, Craig Berube talked about that before the game. I think this was on Saturday, if I'm not mistaken, on Valley Sports Midwest. He sat down with Andy Strickland to discuss Jordan Kyrou. He's got more to give for sure. He's got great speed and shot and skill. Um, it just He's got to find more consistency to his game. He's got to do more things defensively and checking side of things. And listen, the points are the points, but... In the end, we need him to be a 200-foot player. And I want my head coach asking that from his player, and I want my head coach 
putting the player on the ice after he's doing this. Because if this was John Tortorella, and he's just the example that I use, but there are other head coaches around the NHL that do it this way. Like last year, John Tortorella would sit Patrick Laine on the bench in the third period if he did this in the second period. And how are you supposed to grow in that circumstance? And Barubi has said, like, I want that fire from my players to where if I'm barking at them, they bark back. Now, you don't want to talk back the entire time if you're Jordan Cairo, but you want that fire. And the part about it was he showcased it the next game after Craig Berube did that to him. I was going to say, that was the best part for me was seeing that kind of response game from Jordan Cairo because it's one thing to bark at the head coach and go back and forth, but it's another if you don't respond the following game. If you have the same problems occur on a back-to-back and against one of the best teams in the NHL, to your point. And that was the best part for me was seeing Cairo respond to it. And and look, he doesn't need to become a Selkie award-winning forward for the St. Louis Blues. But it just, to Craig Berube's point, it can't be these levels of inconsistency where we can come into the office one day and go, yeah, that whole second period, Jordan Cairo didn't play much defense and he's just out there kind of gliding around. He cuts back on those. I mean, then you're going to look at a guy that we're not even having these conversations about and the kind of season that he's put together where he's almost to the 40-goal plateau. We're not talking about him as an issue. We're talking about him as a potential superstar for the St. Louis Blues. Yeah, I liked the way that he was able to respond. I think that's a big thing. Uh, for me, we've seen now two times, once after the Arizona game where Craig Berube called out all of the top players. But really specifically, we kind of know who he was talking about. Jordan Cairo had played really well basically since then. And then he had another terrible game on Saturday. Craig Berube, He and Craig Berube get into it down in the stairs. And on Sunday, he showed up again when he gets called out by his head coach. Uh, again, I'll give credit where it's due. Jordan Cairo responds. Now, does he then eventually revert back to some of the bad habits? Sure. We all do that. Alex, we were talking about this before the show today. Like, one week, you you wake up on Monday morning, you go for your morning run. That night, you prep all of your meals for the week, and so you're, like, ahead all week long, right? And you feel like you're in a really good place. You're like, man, why don't I do this every week? And then you do it the next week. And then the next week, you get a little busy on Monday, and you're tired, you're groggy, whatever, you don't go on your run. And then later that day, you feel like you're behind, and then you don't prep all of your meals, and now you're going out for every meal, and you feel like crap all week. You're like, man, why don't I just revert back to what I was the last few weeks? We all do this in our own personal lives, and I think Kairou is no different. He's he's a young player that still has some of those things that he's got to get corrected on the ice, and that's why Craig Burby is here. Because he is completely unafraid of coaching even the best players on the team that are expected to make $8 million next year the same way that he would coach uh, Tucker or Rosen or whoever that last man is on the roster. And that's one of the reasons why we like Craig Berube and believe that he's going to be a big piece of this rebuild as it goes along. He can be a guy that gets the most out of Jordan Kyrou. It's going to come with growing pains, and it's going to come with growing pains for both of those guys as well. I'm sure there are moments in the game, off of the ice, whatever, where Craig Berube is just sitting there saying, man, if this guy would just do what we're telling him, (laughs) he could be one of the best players in the NHL. And I'm sure there's times where Jordan Kyrou goes home and says, man, why won't that guy get off of my butt? I am scoring... On pace for almost 40 goals this year. I'm 22nd in the league in, in goals, 40th in points. Just like 10 guys in the league that are my age that are doing what I'm doing, and he won't get off of me. I'm sure that's frustrating sometimes. But when you think back, Alex, to the teacher that you remember the most from your childhood, or Tanner, you think back to the person that got you to where you are today, or I think back to coaches, whatever, some of the ones that I remember the fondest now, not necessarily in the moment, but now, 
are the ones that got on me to find a way to get the most out of me. And I think eventually Jordan Cairo will feel the same way about Craig Berube. Well, and this this happens to the best players in the game. Alex Ovechkin doesn't win his cup unless Barry Trotz steps in and addresses the fact. And Trotz has spoken about this to where he tells Ovechkin, you can be a goal scorer all you want, but until you address the other side of the ice, you're not going to win a Stanley Cup. They did it with Nikita Kucherov in Tampa Bay. Until he stopped the offensive cherry picking, you were never going to get to that plateau. And even if you're a 120-point player, that's why the coach you have is the right coach. And how he's uh, how he's addressed this this season with Jordan Cairo, I think has been as well as you can ask for. The question now is just how do you grow? How do you mature if you're Jordan Cairo? Some of that's on him. Some of that's on Craig Berube. And some of that's going to be on the leadership core in that Blues locker room. Whomever they name as the captain next season, it's going to be on that individual to make sure that Jordan Cairo is being held uh, accountable just like Cairo is going to have to hold himself accountable. I will add this. I do think his ceiling, and I could say this till I'm blue in the face, I think his ceiling as a player defensively is to just be, like, below average. But do you know how quickly Craig Berube would sign up for that right now? Oh, yeah. like oh, He'd hit that button he, in a heartbeat. If you told him, hey, Craig, next year, Jordan Cairo comes in and he's, like, a, on a scale of 1 to 100, a 40 defensively. Craig Berube would be like, man, how do I get that? Tell me what I need to do to get that out of him, and I would sign up for it today. He he saw it with Tarasenko. Like, Tarasenko was never a defensive forward. But when Berube took over, you got the best out of Vladimir Tarasenko in the 200-foot style. That's what you want from Vladimir or from Jordan Cairo. Give me that type of defense. And it's not even playing defense. It's just not getting shoved off. It's It's skating, skating. honestly. It's not getting shoved off the puck and turning the puck over so easily. And it's not blindly passing the puck across the ice in the neutral zone. You avoid those, you're fine. I would add one more thing. And I know there's going to be some that get mad at me for this. If we didn't have to watch Jordan Cairo every night and we were just looking around, we were saying, hey, Who's the guy you want to add this offseason? Let's say Jordan Cairo, instead of playing for the St. Louis Blues, was playing for, I don't know, the Ottawa Senators, for example. And he put up the exact same numbers this year. 36 goals, 71 points in 74 games, and he still had the same plus minus. He was a minus 35 on the season, which is just abysmal. We'd say, ah, man, get him out of that situation. Bring him here to St. Louis. Let him play for Craig Berube. I would pay whatever it takes to get that guy. Bring that guy here. That goal-scoring production, we'd get it figured out. You know how I know that we would be doing that? Because a whole lot of people wanted Alex to bring it, who has scored 26 goals this year with 62 points and is a minus 30 on the year for the Ottawa Senators. As much as it's frustrating to watch it on a night-in, night-out basis, I would much rather have... Jordan Kyrou than not have him as a part of this rebuild for the St. Louis Blues. Coming up next, we'll hit the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. Ferrario 
and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. T-Bone, what do you got for us today in the junk drawer? All right, I got another food one for you guys. Of course, you, always with you. Do you guys? That's true. Do you guys like meatballs? I do. I love me a good meatball. Homemade meatballs. Okay. Correct. Yeah, none of this like frozen meatball That's stuff. That's fair. I'm in with you there. Would you guys be interested, though, in a mammoth meatball? Made How from big is ma- a mammoth? No, not the size. Made from mammoth meat. I do try. A, what, what is a mammoth? Like the prehistoric like a mammoth? Yeah. Seems like there's going to be a lot of hair in my meatball. Well, no, no. We're gonna, it is, you know, kind of how they... Uh, I would imagine it's probably uh, butchered. Yeah, kind of like how you skin yeah, a deer. They, how are they this? getting this? They usually get so all of those In out. Australia, they are using kind of gene... I don't know what all the terminology is. Oh, my is. God. Are we getting a Jurassic Park but with woolly mammoths? But we're going to eat them. Instead yeah, of them that's us. what they said in Jurassic Park, so too. Over in Australia, they have found a way to take the genes that they've found from mammoths, and they're trying to replicate mammoth meat in a laboratory and make it a meatball. Is what could is, possibly go wrong? I'm yeah. sure there is no... Is mammoth meat supposed to be, like, great? It's probably juicy, yeah. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure just normal meat's juicy. I don't know why we got to get a... So here's my concern. Never to had, reinvent the meat. I've never had mammoth before. We just had a pandemic, right? Like, we didn't really uh, enjoy anything that took place there. I would you say You got was... a couple of job promotions, so... Well, that's <laughs> so true. And you got unlimited vacation. Yeah. <laughs> you made out well. Yeah. You, you might be the woolly mammoth in this situation. When you recreate a meat that was last on Earth, what, a few thousand years ago? Yeah. There's probably potential for that to go poorly for us, right? Like maybe a bad reaction from us eating something that was prehistoric. <laughs> I would be curious to see how that would go. Just like, like, what do you test this on? Do you test this first on rats? And then you say, okay, yeah, the meat that we've created yeah. for no real reason. Because rats react like we will when it comes to eating food. It looks pretty good. Like, uh, at what point are you sitting there and you're like, you know what? I'm it just looks sick like of a this. Meatball. I'm sick of this old meat. Let's go get some woolly mammoth meat. That's what I'm craving right yeah, now. No more po- pork. No more beef. We need to go well, with don't mammoth. You, don't you like to be adventurous? Like, I love a good buffalo burger. Like, sure. bu- buffalo meat. Sure, but it's I'm like not the recreating the animal. There's buffalo around. Okay, so that's fair. I'm not going to head into a lab and say, let's create a new like, meat, boys. I like a I good do adventure. I want to know who was the first one that came up with this. Who was the guy oh, that was in the meeting? They're like, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we need new ideas. Chicken, not doing it for us. Beef, no. Buffalo, not quite exotic enough. Who's got an idea of what we could go with for our next push when it comes to the meat? Uh, yeah, Alex, I got a question. Uh... What do you guys think of woolly mammoth's meat? He's got it. I'll be damned he hit it on the head. Okay, but slight problem? There are no such thing as woolly mammoths. Don't worry. We we've have the their, technology. We've got the technology. We've got their genes. <laughs> Coming up next, we'll get into a T-Bone 3. The three biggest takeaways from the first weekend of the Cardinal season. That's next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. So the Cardinals are three games into the regular season. They are two and one, but 
really, they've been impressive in all three games. That first one, they just came a little bit short in what was going to go down as one of the most unlucky games, I would say, of the season. It seemed like everything that was put in play went in for a hit in that one. So right now, you're 2-1, and one, welcoming in the Atlanta Braves to town tonight with Jake Woodford on the mound. You got Mats tomorrow, and then you have... Miles Michaelis for game three in this series on Wednesday. But before we get to the Atlanta series, we wanted to break down the first weekend for the Cardinals, and we know no other way to do so than by breaking it down with a T-bone three, Tanner's three biggest takeaways. Alex, hit the open. I can't believe you just used me in this. T-bone, T-bone, All right, Get your own damn open. Three from the three biggest takeaways from the first series of the Cardinals season. Oh, no six honorable mentions today? No, uh, no. I'll save us time. <laughs> Next time. Uh, number three, man, the birds flew north because the offensive improvements followed them from spring training. Because you look at Nolan Gorman, four for nine, two homers, six RBIs, four walks in the series. Guys, Nolan Gorman last year in a series, three games, two games, four games, whatever it was, did not draw four walks in a series all year long. You've got Brendan Donovan, two home runs in the first three games. As a starter last year, which he took over about May 10th, it took him 44 games to hit two home runs in. Last year, Dylan Carlson, three hits versus right-handed pitching. Alec Burleson, three hits yesterday as well with a home run. We're seeing the improvements that were talked about all spring training long. Fly north with the St. Louis Cardinals here to Bush Stadium. T-Bone tweeted this out yesterday. I'm just going to steal his numbers because they're good ones. The Cardinals right now rank first in Major League Baseball in batting average. They are tied for first in on-base percentage. They are second in slugging percentage, and they have the lowest strikeout rate in all of baseball. Those are some pretty good numbers coming off of the first weekend. Alex, every player in the lineup got a hit in two of their first three games of the season. Again, a nice thing to have happen. We've seen the lineup depth. Timon mentioned a few of them that really stood out. The left-handed bats, I think, are the story of the first weekend. You look at what you got from Nolan Gorman, Alec Burleson, and Brendan Donovan, whether it was the power, the contact, the on-base, it's a nice mix of all the above. We know left-handed bats play in Major League Baseball right now, maybe now more than ever before, especially with the banning of the shift. And over the weekend, the Cardinals' left-handed bats were on full display. If you would have told me after the opening series of a season that you went three games and Arenado and Goldschmidt combined had zero home runs, I would probably assume it was a bad opening weekend for the Cardinals because that seems to be the narrative. They have hit six home runs in three games and not one came from Goldschmidt, Arenado, or Wilson Contreras. And on top of that, I think my bigger takeaway on that offense was their bench and the depth. I mean, you're talking about a Dylan Carlson who entered the game and went three for four. Alec Burleson gets the home runs and, of course, gets two starts. And you're playing those guys because of the injuries to Lars Nupar and Tyler O'Neill. That happened last season. We're talking about losses and where the offense is going to come from. So this offense is about as exciting as I thought it was going to be. And I can't wait to see what this looks like. Like the, the you saw it against the Toronto pitching staff. Now I want to see it against more top pitching staff. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line from the 314. We knew this was coming. Wait, so you're saying they have a better hitting approach? Maybe they have a better hitting coach. Too oh! early to know for sure, of course, but Rhyming signs are pointing in that direction. 
I don't think this is because they got rid of Jeff Albert, but oh, I, I understand there are certainly going to be fans that say that that's the reason. This offense was really good last year, and you have added new elements to it this season. I think that Nolan Gorman was going to make these improvements in the offseason, whether Jeff Albert was here or not. Now, if you want to say that they have a better in-game adjustment this year than they did a year ago, I think that's more than possible. When we saw Jeff Albert, that was one of the issues, if there was one, with his approach. Sometimes there wasn't enough in-game adjustments, but I would say that the offense was going to be good, whether it was Jeff Albert, Turner Ward, whoever was going to be involved. Why? Because they've got a lot of good hitters in the lineup. Can I give you some BK uh, nerdy numbers for you? Not really nerdy numbers, but I'm just going to comp the Mets, the Cardinals. Uh, Three home runs for the Mets. 16 RBIs, 223 batting average, 333 on base percentage, and a 687 OPS. You Yikes. tell me that the hitting coach wasn't the issue. And they were playing Miami. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Miami's got great pitching. Oh, oh do they? Like the one yeah. Name they one. Name one. Lazardo? That's the guy More you More like Lazudo. Sandy Alcantara's pretty good. Yeah, song. I was going to say. Uh, number two from the three biggest teams. <laughs> team Owl was baffled. Absolutely. I couldn't to Lazardo. the first name he went to. Uh, uh, Lazar- Edward Cabrera? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Number two on the three biggest takeaways from the Blue Jays series. Number two. Drew's hip don't lie. That thing is healthy. And I tell you what, he was the best reliever there was this weekend for the St. Louis Cardinals. I had that typed up. I had that that typed up before you said it earlier with our interview with Katie, which you can check out on the podcast page at 101ESPN.com. Thanks to our friends from Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. But Drew Verhagen's hip don't lie. I mean, ending in two-thirds, one hit, three strikeouts, five swing and miss, throwing 96, and the curveball's actually breaking this year. I've been really impressed with what we saw from Drew Verhagen. I know it's just two outings. But, man, I am totally ready to jump ship and just put him in the circle of trust already. I know I should, but I'm ready to break my rule already and put him back in. I'm just glad we had Katie Wu come on and say, like, look, there needs to be some parameters in terms of the circle of trust. There's got to be five innings before we could sit there and say, let's throw him into the circle of trust here. True or false, Drew Verhagen was the most impressive pitcher that we have seen throw for the Cardinals so far. True. True. I don't think it's even close. Who is second on that list? Is it Thompson? Probably. I was, yeah, I would say Thompson because I was really impressed with him. And I actually, I, I thought Jordan Montgomery pitched well yesterday. And I don't know fine. if it was impressive, but he pitched better than either of the first two guys. I thought he was fine. He definitely was the best of the three starters, but that's not saying much given what the first two starters did for the Cardinals. I, I was really impressed by Drew Verhagen. We've heard all offseason. Guys, it's going to look different this time. It's going to look different this time. It's going to look different this time. But how many different times have we heard that about other guys? And you go into the regular season, you're like, man, that's the same dude that I've been seeing. I feel that way a little bit about Dakota Hudson, for example, who had been told time and time and time again, hey, it's different. No, it's not. It's the same guy. Or John Gant, it's going to be different. It's going to get fixed. No, it's not. This is who he is. He doesn't have command. It looks different for Drew Verhagen. He's got wicked stuff, and you can tell by the opposing hitters when they're in the box. Man, there are some really uncomfortable at-bats taking place right now against Drew Verhagen. They are not able to square things up. Fingers crossed that this is sustainable, because if it is, he could be that third piece of the bullpen that we've been talking so much about in the offseason. Didn't know BK went sold Boston on us there. Now Drew Verhagen's got wicked stuff, huh? 
And number one on the three biggest takeaways from the Blue Jays series. Number one, it's on the chosen one, and that's Jack Flaherty. I thought, and again, this is my T-bone three, I, I thought it was good in the short and in the long term for Jack Flaherty. I, I'm not going to jump ship on that. I Yes, there was a lack of command with the fastball, and yes, he had to take miles per hour off of it. I think that's going to change, and I think you saw the building blocks towards what's going to be a big season for Jack Flaherty. The slider looked good, in my opinion. He did generate uh, a total of eight swing and misses with four strikeouts. I think the fastball velo command is going to come, and when it does, it sets up everything else better. I thought that first start was a building block for the chosen one, Jack Flaherty. Man, we're labeling them the chosen one right now with T-Bone. I, I mean, I, again, I'm not going to sit here and shoot him down for that performance because it was much better than what we saw in spring training where he was getting hit around and you were giving up those runs. You weren't able to get out of those tight jams and you got out of it multiple times. Um, but I'm still looking for that ace stuff. That's what I want to see. And, and as Katie mentioned, she's going three starts. I would even give Jack a little bit more leniency. I'd look more at like a five starts before I could sit there and start judging his stuff because of how much time he's missed over the last three years. So great performance to start it off, but I'm wanting to see more because Jack's putting that uh, label on himself. Yeah, let me start start with just assessing his start on Saturday and then we'll look a little bit more big picture about it. I I was really impressed by his ability to bounce back. If Adam Wainwright and I've seen some or pushback against this. Well, you can't compare him to the 41 year old starter. And if Waino did that in his 30s, in his early 30s, we would be all falling over ourselves saying, man, look at how gutty that was. Finding a way to grind through five innings without having his best stuff. We love that stuff when Adam Wainwright's doing it. When Jack does it, it's like, oh, he'll never be a stud. He doesn't have the stuff, the mental fortitude. Man, well, he just showed you the mental fortitude in that game. I'm going to give him the credit when it's due. He walked seven, hit one, had traffic on the bases basically his entire start, and did not have command of any of his pitches, I think including the slider. I thought it was a little hit and miss in that game, and he certainly had no command over his fastball. Gives you five innings of no-run no baseball? That's pretty damn good. You'll sign up for that. Now, in the big picture, though, it was a little bit concerning to me. The velocity was down. I know he took a little bit off. He hit 94 in the first inning and then basically pitched. He was averaging around 90 with his fastball the rest of the game. That's concerning to me. Uh, the slider, I thought, was okay. He had moments where it looked really good and other moments where it didn't look like he had great command of it. You look down the road, man, if that's going to be anything approaching what he is this year, the Cardinals don't have a number one starter. It's good enough to be in your rotation. You don't feel like that's a guy that's like holding you back. But given the way that they constructed this roster, they needed him to be a number one. And after one outing, it's only one outing, certainly didn't look like a number one to me. Coming up next, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Great T-Bone 3 today. In or out? Coming up next, you're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Come on, man. Are you in or are you out? It's in or out with BK and Ferrario. is the Air Comfort Service text line for in or out. Let's start with this, guys. I'm feeling confident coming out of the Cardinals weekend. In or out, this team wins 100 games this year. Out. Jeez, come come on, on, man. man. Damn, you you lost a game. Like, let's let's plump the brakes here. Let's do some quick math. The game they lost was, like, they might as well have won that. 
if you look at the underlying numbers, they should have won. 62 times 66%. Well, that'd be 106 wins. So yeah. he's on to something there. They're on pace right now. If you win two-thirds of all your games. Um, if they sweep the Braves, are you in? Sure. If they sweep the, the Braves, I'll jump Hell on that yeah. to hype train I'd with you. I'd still say no, because they're going to face Charlie Morton, this lefty that I thought BK made up earlier. And then we, they're skipping Freed's spot we, because Freed's hurt. So. Oh, oh, you're saying that they're pit, they're going up against bad pitchers, but yeah. they're going up against great offense, man. And the pitching is the biggest concern. And if you find a way to sweep the Atlanta Braves, why would you doubt them? I mean, if we're going based on the knowledge of BK said where they could have won game one. Yeah, they could have won like nine to eight. Like that's not well, the that's Blues impressive could, offensively. Blues could have won wise. game six last year, but you know. Yeah, I, I still would say they should have. There was an injury. Yeah. I don't know if you remember. Well, that was game three, but Jordan Bennington got hurt, and then yeah. it totally changed they the series. They were playing their best the goalie, last year. okay? They were playing their best goalie. It just happened to be a bad break. <laughs> they weren't playing their best goalie. <laughs> I, I'm out of this, though. Yeah, I, I'm out on this. I, I still don't want to jump the gun and say they're a 100-win team just because, I mean, if their pitching is what it was the we first three games. Do that. I'm in on this. I think they're winning 100 games and getting the second-best record in the National League this year. I hope they're pitching fixes its problems. It'll be fine. Have you seen this offense? If they do, we can all say that a Jeff Albert was the problem. I can't wait for that. That's going to be a really fun story. You can't wait for that. It's already happening. It's a track all season long. I (laughs) just so happy that that's going to be the talking point once again this year. Honestly, I'm fine with it. I I, I genuinely do not even care. Like, (laughs) If Turner, if you think that Turner Ward is the reason that the offense is turning it around, yeah. God bless you. I also like, think I, more power you to you. I also think their pitching coach is the problem why the pitchers haven't pitched well. Uh, I can't believe you didn't come up with the offense with Turner Ward is turning around. I can't believe you didn't come up with that kind give of. Give me enough time. I probably would have. <laughs> he just needed more time. Timo, do you have an in or out for us? Yeah, in or out. Dylan Carlson will be on the major league roster past the trade deadline. I'm in on this. I think. I think the Cardinals like having him as one of their four outfielders. I do not think that they're going to trade him away at the deadline. The other thing is, man, if they really view him the way that they have so far, I'm not sure that other teams are going to be like pounding down the door to trade for Dylan Carlson because he will at that point be your fifth outfielder. So, yeah, I think that he's still on the roster at past. I would say that also because I just don't know what the trade value of that would be. And you're not just going to trade him just to trade him. You're going to make a trade to try and get somebody significant. Uh, I would actually lean more towards there would be other outfielders that could be available via trade if you're going to make a move at the deadline. Alex, what do you got for in or out? Uh, in or out, let's go on the hockey side of this one. We talked about Cairo nearing 100, or nearing 40 points. In or out, the Blues could have three players next season with 100 points. I, I heard them talk about this on the broadcast yesterday. That's why I brought it up, because when Curbs no, mentioned I'm like, not. oh. Huh? No. What? How? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you see three guys play really well. I was going to say, well, usually when you have a lot of goals, there's a lot of points that are surrounded by those goals. The two that would be obvious would be Kyrie and Thomas. Who's Buchnevich? Verona, baby. Wow. Look, Verona is just starting to pass the puck a little bit more. He's got the Brandon Saad syndrome these days. Uh, By the way, did you see Brandon Saad? He's actually starting to get more assists. He's almost a 20 assists. This guy just waits for the end of the season to be responsible. You don't don't have to watch Brandon Saad. You know Just what you're going to get. Look, look at the back of the hockey card, the hockey reference page by the end of the season. I'll tell you what it's going to be. It's going to be somewhere between 20 and 25 goals. And somewhere between and 15 and 25 45 points. Yeah, probably. Every year, like clockwork, he yeah. finds a way to get there. At times, he seems invisible. At other times, he feels like he is the most dominant player on the ice. There's no in between. That move that he pulled the other night where he like found a way to go between two guys and stay on his skates, it's unbelievable. 
The guy's amazing. The three point, the three guys though are in Buchnevich. Last year, seventy three games, seventy six points. It's it's about health with Buchnevich, which is about everybody. But who was the last team to have three guys that had a hundred points? No, my my answer is out. I, I couldn't be more out on this. In fact, I'm so out on this too. I can't. Like well, unless they get Bedard. If they get Bedard, okay, well, now maybe this we're way. talking about. I mean, two, I, you could potentially have two guys. I'm still out. I'm out on one. I, I don't <laughs> know if they got one. Hot damn. I mean, as much as I love Cairo and Robert Thomas, they're not even close to the 100-point mark right now, and the season's almost over. So, And I get it. They weren't on the top line because O'Reilly was here, but I, I'm i out on this. I, I don't see one guy getting 100 points. Buchnevich would be the guy that I think could do it, but he's, a, he's been unable to stay healthy so far. Cairo, I don't think, has the assist numbers to get there. He'd have to score, like, 60 goals. And then Robert Thomas never shoots the puck, so I'm out. I'm out completely. All right, any guesses on the last time that this happened? I, I had to look it up it because of how to, ridiculous it is. It has to be like a Gretzky team. I don't know if Gretzky had anybody around him that would get 100 well, Gretzky, Gretzky. Oh, you mean Gretzky. Edmonton and 86-87 had three of them. Are you talking Blues teams or are no. you talking just NHL teams? Yeah, NHL it was probably team. the Edmonton Oilers teams that did it. Oh, well, Gretzky was on four different teams that did this. Yeah. My gosh. Those Edmonton Oilers teams have the, like The most four recent guys. team to do it, though. Any guesses how long it's been since that team accomplished? Detroit that Red Wings. So I'd say, I don't know. I don't Early know 2000s. The Red Wings never did this. Yeah, I was going to say. Gosh, they I, had too many guys to, to do that. I can't think of a team that's been so... Th- I'm going 30 years. I can't think of a team that's been dominant in the 2000s that's done well, it. 2014, the guy who led the NHL in points was Jamie Benn with 87 of them. So 100 points seems to be a little risky these days. Although they're going to have six guys potentially with it this year. Who? Who is it? The 95-96 Pittsburgh Penguins. Who did it then? Yager, Lemieux, Lemieux and Ron Francis. And Ron Francis. That's the last time this has been accomplished. So you're asking me, are the Blues going to do something next year that has not not been done in the NHL in 27 seasons? Yeah, I'm going to say out. I'm going to say I I think it's relatively unlikely that that takes place. Three of them, I'm out. Are you in? Two of them, I'm in. Really? Yeah, I think they can get two of them. In one season, you're talking about extended ice time for Kairou, Thomas, and Buchnevich. Two of those three playing a line together, and you get the offense that you're, you've got right now. Two guys could get that. If they do that, they are making the playoffs next year. I said they're going to make the playoffs next year. If they're not, there's some serious issues. Well, if, they if they're not, it's probably because they're giving up 100 points to one player because of how bad the defense is. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service X line. Guys, in or out, Tyler O'Neill is the Cardinals outfielder that is traded by the deadline. I will start. I am out on this. I do not think that Tyler O'Neill will be traded at the deadline. I think what you're watching right now is they trust him to be your center fielder. Now, is he perfect out there? No, but he's really solid he's perfectly fine as a starting everyday center fielder for you uh and he's shown the power that they've been looking for so i'm gonna say i'm out on this i do not think tyler o'neill is traded in season off season we could talk about that in season no i'm the same place there you're not gonna trade away numbers in the outfield this trade deadline if you're trying to make a push especially if the narrative of your team is offense so yeah i'm out on this one if you had to make a rankings though of the players Let's just say outfielders who could potentially be dealt at the trade deadline. How would you rank them? I think Carlson's one. Part of me wants to say Alec Burleson might be one. That's what I was wondering is where you would rank Burleson versus. Especially if he's showing you all of that and Walker and Newt Bar and O'Neill are hitting. I would say probably Carlson would be one. 
I, I would say Carlson is the most likely to be traded and then Burleson, but I don't think they want to give up that lefty See, I, bat. That's why I would go Carlson, and honestly, the second guy would probably be not even on the roster, and I know you said on the roster, yeah. it would probably be Yepes yeah. would be the second one, but he's struggled in three games in Memphis. So I just far. think if you're wanting to get something of quality, that's where Burleson would trump over Carlson, and you feel like, okay, we're I, adding to pitching, and we know our outfield solidified. I, I know when I asked the question of Dylan Carlson, they're out, he's on the roster past the deadline, and you guys said, I don't know how much value he'd have if he's the fifth on the Carlson. I think he still would have quite a bit. I, I think a lot of teams would look at him and go, top prospect in baseball, not in baseball, but in the Cardinal system for a while. Switch hitter that if the improvements in spring against right-handed pitching were real and it's tough to get a sample size based on playing time because he was number five in St. Louis, I could see a team like Tampa Bay, for example, if they were to move glass now, which I don't think they would, but if they did, he would make a ton of sense. They'd they'd want minor leaguers and they'd probably want a major league ready talent. So I think Carlson definitely number one on that list. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line. Guys in or out, Nolan Gorman and Brendan Donovan combined to hit at least 50 home runs this season. (laughs) Gorman and Donovan, 50 home runs this season. They have combined so far for four in the first three games of the season. I mean, they're on pace for 180 on the year. In this circumstance, you're either believing Gorman's a 40 home run hitter or Donovan's a 15 home run hitter. Probably the latter. Maybe both. What was the number again? 50, 50 total between the two of them. Damn, I want to say out, but I mean, Brendan Donovan's let's be on real. pace for 108. <laughs> I'm, We're really doing this. I'll, after I'll, say, three I'll games. say I'm in on. I'll say I'm in on this. I, I think Donovan can get to 15, and if he can get to 15, I think Gorman can definitely get to 35. So that would get you to that 50 mark. So um, I'll say there's a chance, and I'll, I'll roll the dice on it. I'm in. I do think that Brendan Donovan's going to hit 15 home runs this year. I think the power that we have seen is real. I don't know how anybody could say that it's not real based on what we've seen for the first three games of the season. And again, this is one of those things where. We saw signs of it in spring training, and it has carried over into the regular season. And he's doing this against quality pitchers. Now imagine when we get into, like, the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Cincinnati Reds on the schedule. You're going up against um, some later teams this season, like the LA Angels, Detroit, Boston. You've got some bad teams that are Kansas City. Got some bad teams that are coming up on the schedule where he could potentially boost his numbers as well. I am in on 15 home runs, at least for Brendan Donovan this year. And I get 30 plus out of uh, Nolan Gorman. So I'm going to say I'm in on this. I think they do combine for at least 50 home runs. I'll be the bad guy. I'm going to say I'm out because through the length of 162 games, you're going to go on some type of cold spell. And usually when you hit that, it's hard to come out of it. It takes a little bit of time. And of course, you're talking about one guy who's getting a full season under his belt. Another guy who's getting a second full season. I'll say I'm out on this. Guys in or out, Jake Woodford goes at least six innings tonight against out. the Atlanta Braves. Out. Oh. He'll give you three. Oh, he's he's better than Michaelis who gave you three. Oh, against the Atlanta I'm Braves going, roster? I'll go yeah. in. I, I think Woodford I think Woodford's gonna fool around a little bit to show that he no, can be geez. in the rotation next year. I his I don't know, speaking of power with Donovan, I don't know how you could look away from the spring that Jake Woodford had. Because I mean, he it was, was spring training. I get it, but I his slider was different, and that's a that's what the Cardinals wanted to see from him. So I'll say I'm in. I say he goes six innings, and if you were a betting man, which I am, I would say take Woodford plus five strikeouts tonight. I'm out. I, I'll come on the airwaves tomorrow and say I was completely wrong if he's able to yeah, give that not, to you. I not, don't see that happening against the Atlanta Braves offense. Let's not timestamp this in case I'm wrong. Yeah.
Don't worry, I will. I'm out as well. I think he gives you five. I think he gives you five strong innings, and you feel good about that because if your number five starter gives you five strong innings, you'll take that every day of the week. Final one here. Guys, in or out, Alec Burleson should be in the starting lineup once again tonight against Charlie Morton. I mean, I would say I'm in, especially if Lars, yeah, Lars Newbar is. It sounds like he's ready to go today for what it's worth. That's why I would say out. <sighs> yeah. Could you, could you make a case? Newton center, Walker in right, and Burleson in left. Could, but I, I I'd want rather to see have O'Neal. I, I, I just want O'Neal to get an at-back because yeah. he had an off day yesterday. And he so, looked good in his first few games, yeah. uh, in his first couple of games. So I would say out just because that means if I put him in, I've got to either pull out Newport, who they do view as a starter, or O'Neal, who they view as a starter, or they view uh, Gorman as the DH. And I don't want to take him out because he's been playing so well. If you wanted to do it, I would understand saying, you know, let's give Jordan Walker a day off. That would be the way I would do and it. I, but I don't, don't know think I would do that, that either. I Not would let Jordan way. Walker keep going. So, yeah, no, I'm out on this. Okay. Coming up next. What is the biggest issue for the Blues defensively? Now, we could list about 12 of them. Allowing goals! What is at the top of that list? Randy Carricker brought up an interesting point earlier today. I think Alex disagrees with it. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Predators shoot it on. Grice with the save. And it's rebounded and in. Rico turned it over at the front of the net to Trennan. And then as he shoveled it to the front of the net, they had a little hot sauce to the wound to hit off of Perico and in. And it's 5-1 Nashville. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. That's what it sounded like on Saturday as the Blues just got molly whopped by it the was, Nashville Predators. It was wicked, huh? Not fun. Not an enjoyable game, unless you're rooting for uh, draft status, in which case it was a very enjoyable game for you to be able to watch. They lose 6-1 to one in that one. Alex, the defense has been a problem all year long. This is not breaking news to anybody that is listening to the show right now. The Blues have allowed the fourth most goals in the NHL so far this season. They are tied for the third worst PK in the league so far this year. It's been bad all around. They allow too many goals. They don't have enough sustained offensive zone pressure. Their forwards aren't good enough in their own zone. Their defensemen uh, don't take the body enough. They're not protecting in front of the net. Too many backdoor tap-ins. We all know the story of the season so far. Randy Carricker, though, brought up an interesting point earlier today. Sounded like it was sourced by people inside of the Blues organization. I wanted to get your thought on whether or not this is the biggest reason for the Blues' defensive issues. Here's what Randy had to say earlier today on the opening drive. There is a thought process over there at the build at the rink that a lot of this could be solved systemically. That the the players are not necessarily the the major issue here. Maybe just some philosophical changes about the way they play defense will help them. I just think that there's there are tweaks that could be made within the talent that they have, and it seems to me like the system can play a role in the improvement of the club. So that was Randy earlier today. If you missed any of their show, you should check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com and the free 101 ESPN app. It is all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. I should also add, as con- important context, I think, for that clip, Randy had also mentioned earlier in that segment 
the Blues are all in on Craig Berube. He's not suggesting that this is a Craig Berube problem, just a schematic thing. And my guess is that probably leads to questions about McTavish or Van Ryan, like assistant coaches. What do you want to do defensively? And maybe it relates back to the Jim Montgomery thing that happened in the offseason where he takes the Boston Bruins job. Alex, when you hear that from Randy, and he's talking about, hey, the system could be a part of the problem right now. How does that hit your ears? I disagree with it because this is nothing to do with system and everything to do with individuals buying into the system. Because as much as we can talk about how, oh, yeah, systematically, if they go to a 1-3-1 type of four check like the L.A. Kings do, then they're less likely to give up those odd man rushes. Great. But all of that resides on the players actually playing that way. And, and to look at it as a systematic thing, listen to Craig Berube when it comes to pregames, postgames, after practices. He's essentially telling you what he wants the players to do. We want them to put the puck in the right areas. We want them to back check. We want to make sure that they're being physical in their own zone, just like they are in the offensive zone. It's not like the blue system is dump the puck. Three guys go in after it. Two defensemen go in after it and then go back and back check. <laughs> like that's not what he's doing there. And, and I actually thought Jr. put it perfectly in his mailbag earlier today on the athletic. It, it, he said the Blues are built a lot differently now than, of course, what they were in the past, because somebody asked the question, is this Mike Van Ryan's problem, who's, of course, in charge of the defense? And he said, you can look at the staff and say that, sure, they have to tweak some areas to fit the personnel, but it's more a case of that than a change in the system leading to the shot chances being flipped in the odd man rushes. Forwards need to get back and help, which they haven't done a great job of, and that leads to fewer shots at the other end as well. This, to me, has nothing to do with systematic approaching things and everything to do with the individuals on the ice sacrificing more offense for a little bit more responsibility in the neutral zone in their own zone i'm gonna do a little um little game with you alex play play the game of saw right is it a board game because we all know you don't believe in those (laughs) no 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 just give me a yes or a no is this player a plus defender and by plus defender i mean like would you consider him to be well above average okay defensively brandon sod I would say no. I would say he's fine. I'd say average. Yeah, I mean, I would I would probably say above average because anybody who you're putting on the penalty kill has a little bit more responsibility on the defensive zone. So I would say above average, but not well above average. No, not I'm not talking like Alexander Steen defensive prowess. Braden Shen. I would say yes. Yeah, I would say yes. Yeah, I would probably put him in the same Brandon Sod area. Yakub Rana. No. <laughs> Sorry, Jordan Cairo. Sorry, buddy. No. Oh, God, no. Kasperi Kapanen. I would yeah, say no. I, I think would, he's fine. I would put him in the average conversation. Agreed. Sammy Boy. I'll say no. Average conversation. I'd say average. Yeah. Jake Neighbors. I would say no. Yeah. yeah. You're too young to label that right Logan now. Logan Brown. <laughs> no. <laughs> he might be lower than Cairo. <laughs> uh, damn, man. Uh, Robert Thomas. I would I'd say s- above average. Oh, really? Yeah, I would like I would put him in the same. I would, I would not say he's well above average. I think he got labeled as that whenever he first came up with the Blues, and we're always like, hey, that's a responsible defensive-minded centerman. And I, he was, I'm not totally sure I believe he that. He was overshadowed by all of the great defensive forwards around him. I think he's fine. I don't I, think he's like a, a net liability I defensively, would, but I think he's fine. I would put him in the sod conversation, yeah. maybe a little bit. Maybe he'll tick below that. Pablo Buchnevich. I would say he's say probably he's your best defensive forward. Totally agree. I think there is one, maybe two well above average defensive forwards that you have in your top nine right now. When you have at any given time, maybe one plus defensive forward, 
I think that's a much bigger issue than what your system you is. Think? I, it's just like the Cardinals lineup. For years, you would look up and down the lineup and you'd be like, man, I really like three of those guys. And there's a whole lot of names around them. And I can't tell you a whole lot of positive things about them. But there are definitely nine names in that lineup on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> and now you look at it and you're like, holy bleep. Jordan Walker is their eight-hole hitter? Yep. That is one hell of a lineup. That's what it used to be for the Blues. You would look up and down their lineup and you'd be like, wow, you have like five defensive-minded forwards that are also helpful offensively that are in your lineup. And so at any given time, you've got most of the time two, sometimes at least one like really good defensive-minded forward on the ice at all times at any portion of the game. You don't have that right now. And so what is the problem for the Blues? I think it is far more personnel than it is what they have in terms of their system. And listen, I'm not some hockey expert when it comes to what they're doing defensively system-wise. I'm not going to pretend that I am. But I've watched enough Blues hockey at this point to know when you are playing at any given time, at least one of Verona, Cairo, or, or Logan Brown right now, at all times, one of those guys is probably on the ice. Right. It's not great. It's not great what you've got going on right now defensively. From the 3-1-4, I disagree completely. Our defense is too aggressive going forward, and it burns us time and time again with odd man rushes and turnover. They set back more, we'd be more to better defensively. And then you would be worse offensively. I was and just going to say. talking about, hey, they don't score goals, and they still allow a bunch of them. Look at the goals that were scored yesterday against Boston. The first one that was scored, the Cairo one uh, that that... that that got brought the Blues bit within 3-1, and then, of course, Tory Krug. That first goal was scored because Colton Pareko jumped into the rush and pushed two defensemen to the front of the net so Kairou could take that shot. Kyrou, or Krug goes to the front of the net and scores a rebound from Brandon Saad creating that. Your team, if we're going to talk system, your team is built for defense to join the rush offensively. But you know what happens when your forwards <laughs> put the puck in a bad spot and turn it over at the blue line? You get an odd man rush the other way, and if you sit there and say, well, if we we just had our defense play in the neutral zone, then you know what also happens? You're probably getting 18 shots on goal in a game and not winning. The, I'm going to try to make this probably overly complicated, but you know how you have like the kinetic chain uh, on your body? So like if, for example, a pitcher has a forearm issue, we all know what that means, right? Tommy John. Eventually it's coming to the elbow, which is coming to the shoulder. That's kind of how it goes, right? It's all connected when it comes to those injuries. The blues are basically that way. The forwards are the forearm, the defensemen are the elbow, and the goalie is the shoulder. If you end up having a terrible play by your forwards in the offensive zone, guess what ends up having a problem as a result? The defenseman, the elbow. And then it leads to, oh God, this is going to be on the goalie, isn't it? Yeah, shoulder goes after that. That's where the Blues are at. Their fo- their forearm went out, which led to a torn UCL. Their elbow was hurting, and when they were coming back, their shoulder went out by putting too much pressure on that. That's where they're at with their defensive issues. It's a little bit of everything, but the system is like the last thing yeah. that I would point to. Great. It's going to be like five years before we're fixed. No, Just no, like no, a man. pitcher with an arm hey, issue. What does Tommy John do? And All it needs is one year off, and then the next year you're back and they're you're fine. They're going to come back throwing 102. The rewind is next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the bagel loan featuring zero fees and zero closing costs.
today's show. Be sure to check out the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, and the free 101ESPN app is where you can go to find it. It is all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. So we're coming off of what was a really fun weekend watching the St. Louis Cardinals. Guys, if you could have one takeaway from the Cardinals opening weekend, let's focus specifically on the offense. What was the thing that opened your eyes the most? It's three games in. I understand if you want to just save your text. I get it. Like, it, yes, we are overreacting to three games. That's that's what we've got to go off of. So deal with it. <laughs> if there was one thing that you saw after three games that kind of changed your outlook on a player on that area of the team, what was it for you? Alex? Mine was the difference with Wilson Contreras in the lineup, because when you have Wilson Contreras in that lineup, just looking at opening day and then, of course, yesterday, there really is no opportunity for a starting pitcher to figure his stuff out. Like what Jack Flaherty went through in day two of trying to adjust on the fly. Pitchers can't do that with this Cardinals offense when 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 Wilson when Wilson's Contreras is in it. My God, that was difficult to say. You got there, buddy. Um, what Chris Bassett have to say about this offense after that performance to me tells you what the difference is when you put a Wilson Contreras in the lineup. I, I think mine was just in the depth and probably Alec Burleson coming off of the bench. One because I was shocked that he was in favor of Dylan Carlson. But two, like, you saw why they did it. I mean, he had the opposite field home run. He had a double. I think he had a single as well. Like, you can see his bat is profiling the way that they thought it was. And I I was skeptical of that coming into the season because he didn't really perform well in spring until the final, like, week. So I was kind of like, okay, he's making the roster just because Yep has really struggled. I I think he made the roster because his bat proved it belonged on the team. And I was impressed with his performance hitting in the two spot, filling in for Lars Newbar on Sunday and also in Saturday's game. I would go with Brendan Donovan. And sorry, it's just funny because there's two guys that I know you're like infatuated with. Brendan Brendan Donovan could be a dude. Yeah, he could be a dude. I think Brendan Donovan is my favorite baseball player. Like full stop ever. Wow, you just throw Lars Newpar to the side like that, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's that was cruel. Lars got Wally pipped. He hurt his thumb and it was <laughs> the, over. The waitress just walked over and said, you want more pepper on your salad? And he's like, no! I like salt better this year. Uh, I'm, See I'm what I did there? I'm By the way, I saw the celebrations. It's just weird, man. Yeah, I don't know that this one's going to catch yeah. on. Jordan Walker did it too when he was like on base. His tongue is like, oh, I st- so I'm going to get nerdy with you guys here for a second. Uh, a barreled ball. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> You're about to define a barreled ball. It comes <laughs> in, in a specific exit velocity at a specific launch oh, angle. God, it's trigonometry all over again. Basically, you would expect to get a 500 batting average on these balls in play. So you hit it really well. It's basically, hey, did you square it up, right? What we used to say where it was like, I'm sure Turner Ward, who everybody loves right now, he'd say square it up. That's what a that's what a barreled ball is. Last year, Brendan Donovan did it 11 times. In 324 batted ball opportunities. Oh, my gosh. That is, in a word, terrible. This year, he's done it four times in 13 batted ball opportunities. He has a 31% barrel rate, which basically means every three times that he hits a ball or puts it in play, he's barreling it one of those times. His hard hit rate last year, 38%. That was well right around league average. This year... 55% every other ball that he's putting in play this year is hit at 95 miles per hour or above. Brendan Donovan has real power guys. Last year he was like, man, imagine if we could get power with this 
And now he's like, here we go. Let's see what it looks like when I hit 20 home runs this season. I really think he might be a 20 home run guy. And if he is, we're talking about a player that can play anywhere on the diamond. He is a plus defender at second base. He gets on base better than just about any player in the sport. Right now, even if you look at his expected numbers, his expected slugging percentage is 530 so far in the early portion of the season. The guy looks like an all-star. And if he continues playing this way, he probably will be an all-star for your St. Louis Cardinals. And now you potentially have one at each spot on the infield. That's absurd. Absolutely absurd. BK's all-star roster. You know, you know, when you're at Bush Stadium and you have to like punch out the holes. It's the Royals from 2015. He's going to do that on every single Cardinal. <laughs> yes. It's like, oh, I got a Cardinal starting all-star. Who would have thought? Brendan Donovan has stolen my heart. Lars Newtbar, I'm Lars. sorry. It was really great. We had a light, nice flirtation over the last few months. But <laughs> you I'm quicker than me. BK, I'm in a monogamous I, relationship oh my God. now with Brendan Donovan. I already proposed it. BK, can I ask you a question? When you, do, you, do you remember when you first started sports betting? Yeah, it was uh, the Broncos playoff game when Tim, Tim Tebow was starting. I called my buddy. I said, hey, please put a bet in for me on Bovada. I would like a massive wager on the Pittsburgh Steelers. I don't know if you guys remember that game. Uh, the Broncos won in overtime. So I was going to was my next question was going to be like when you won your first bet in yeah, sports, did you sit there and say, man. I'm good at this. I'm going to win all the time and just start throwing money nonstop and not even think that there's going to be some slow periods throughout all of no, this. I lost first and then I started winning and then I lost again a lot. So okay. that's where I'm at. Okay. Well, I was just the Cardinals break my heart. And then there is a player that works out three games in. You say, God, this guy's incredible. And then when it hurts your heart again, oh, then no. it's going to be in Memphis before too long. Oh, great. No, 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 no. Brendan Donovan's too good for that. The fast lane's coming up next. <laughs> Brendan Donovan could be a dude. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.